to WBAI, to Driving Forces, where we focus on the big issues in city, state, and national politics, the issues that matter to you. You were just listening a short while ago to a Thanksgiving prayer by William S. Burroughs, and before that, a special two-hour Let's Talk with John Kane. I'm Jeff Simmons, your host this afternoon for the next three hours in this special extended Driving Forces. Again, welcome back to WBAI. You may, for those who uh, consistently consistently listen to the show, you may have noticed we had a different intro just for today, our opening music. It's a song that's called Ambiance by Roberta Pickett. She's an acclaimed pianist, organist, composer, and arranger, and she's going to be performing at Flushing Town Hall next week on Friday, December 6th. That's from her album, One for Marion, celebrating Marion McPartland, the legendary jazz artist and NPR host. And in fact, thanks to Roberta and to Flushing Town Hall, during this show today, we have five pairs of tickets. I could probably score a few more if uh, we could get a lot of requests for these, but I have a five pairs of tickets for our listeners today. If you uh, call in and become a BAI buddy or, and show your support for BAI. And during the uh, end of this hour, we're going to have Roberta on the line to talk a little about her music and Marianne McPartland. Uh, and uh, throughout the show today, you're going to be able to get a taste of what her stellar performance is going to be like next Friday, December 6th. Thank you to our listeners for taking the time today to uh, tune into WBAI. I hope you've had some good times with friends and family today, or at least some peace on this very windy day. Uh, for many folks, obviously, this is the start of the giving season, a chance to give thanks. Um, I was really proud uh, for it's been about 15 years that I started off my day at a, a nonprofit called God's Love We Deliver this morning, volunteering, packing thousands of meals. Uh, I will admit that for a while there, I felt like Lucille Ball in that one episode with a <laughs> conveyor belt because I couldn't keep up pace the way uh, some more dedicated volunteers do. But we were able to get uh, put together about, I believe it was about 8,000 meals that were delivered to a number of homebound people. Uh, and joining us that morning was my former boss, City Controller Bill Thompson, Assemblyman Felix Ortiz, and also uh, uh, the chef Sandra Lee, and television personality Sandra Lee. Um, I wanted today to really be a bit different than what we normally do because much of driving forces, we do focus a lot on what is going on in Washington, D.C., and it feels like every week we're just astounded by the developments uh, that just seem to be taking place. Obviously, we fought, we're following the impeachment drama. And as my colleague here in the studio, Reggie Johnson, mentioned just a short while ago, the more astounding thing that's happened, uh, it's, you know, this is not affecting global politics, but you just have to shake your head when you see uh, the picture of uh, President <laughs> of the President Trump, what, putting his head on top of Sylvester Stallone's yeah, body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so, this, it, it, yeah, it's the sight to be seen. Yeah. But if you don't mind, um, Jeff, I wanted to add on that uh, Marion McPartland was also, before she went over to NPR, she started her radio career here at WBAI. See, I learned something every day from you. Yes. That, you know, we had Melissa Mark Viverito on once, yes. and I learned right when we came in here that she had also been here. I'm she was an intern here. for Latino Journal. So, and, Mar uh, and Marion McPartland is someone who uh, Roberta has said, you know, uh, she had known her for a number of years, uh, you know, a, a mentor to her. Uh, and we're going to be able to talk with her a little while uh, in a little while about that. Uh, before we get to our first guest in about uh, two about two minutes, I do want to remind our listeners, and Reggie had done this as well, you know, about the importance of supporting BAI. 
Uh, you know, I've been here for just a little about a year and a few months. Uh, I am a newbie here. And what's been so impressive is getting to meet a lot of the volunteers here because the majority of the people that you hear on air at BAI are volunteers and they give their blood, sweat and tears to this station. And that's why it was so painful uh, for that period of about a month when our local programming was you know, off the air uh, because of that rogue faction of Pacifica that you know, suddenly took over the station and locked people out. And you know, since we've been back, we're trying to recoup a lot of those financial losses that we had hoped to be able to, to um, you know, bring in a lot of revenue. We were in our fundraising days that was only like three or four days into it, and we were doing very well. And that's why I do want to uh, let our listeners know uh, that if you can, during this show today, in the name of Driving Forces, if you can just take a few moments, and, you know, it is the giving season, and if you could just show some love to WBAI, if it's meant something to you, that's really uh, that would be so wonderful to us. There are three ways. Now, Reggie says you can go old school, which is you can mail a check, and we'll give you the address at some point. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you that address. But if you have a moment and you even could just give a call, the number to donate, and we can give you a pair of tickets. And Roberta's going to talk about this later. A pair of tickets to her show at Flushing Town Hall uh, next Friday night if you become a BAI buddy. There's different ways you could do this. Call 516 620 3602. You can go online as well to give to, that's the number two, WBAI.org. And you could easily just text, uh, uh, let's see, two, uh, you can text the letters WBAI to the number 41444. So just text the letters WBAI to 41444 and pledge your support. Uh, mention that you're doing it in the name of Driving Forces and you would like to receive a pair of tickets to Roberta Pickett's concert uh, uh, at Flushing Town Hall on Friday, December 6th. I want to thank you again for tuning in today. Throughout the show, we'll talk a little more about Roberta. We'll have her on near the end of this hour. So I'd like to get... I'd like to get to my first guest today, Diane Morales. She is the executive director and chief executive officer of Phipps Neighborhoods, which she's led for much of the last decade. And recently, she announced she was running as a registered Democrat to succeed Bill de Blasio uh, to become the mayor of New York City. We've had her on one of the shows before to talk about Phipps, but since then she has announced. And so I wanted to bring her back today to talk about why she wants the city's top job. Welcome back to WBAI, Diane. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. So uh, to be here. when you were on uh, before, we did talk about FIPS, but since then you've made this big announcement. Why did you decide to run? You've said it's you know time for a new vision. Uh, then you know I'm curious why you know what's the vision you feel that De Blasio has had, and what prompted you to run? <laughs> sure, that's a good question. Um, well, you know I, I think so. I have spent the the majority of my career, or all of my career, actually. Working with communities, I've, I've been an educator, I've done social work, I have been an executive of, of nonprofit organizations, working with the most marginalized, uh, forgotten populations, and, and really developing solutions to help increase access and opportunity. And I've been actually pretty successful in that capacity, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. I've, I've, done, I've had the opportunity to work with some incredible folks who have been really, really dedicated to creating change in communities. But the reality of it is that all of those uh, things that I've been able to do or we've been able to do and been successful at have actually been 
somewhat despite the systems and structures. We've had to work around things and, and find alternatives in order to create access and opportunity. And I think, all, I think that my professional experience combined with my personal experience and my lived experience as a single mom of, of two children with learning differences in the New York City public school system and navigating those challenges, all of those things have come together to make me feel like there, there has to be a better way. And I think that my successes in navigating these things could and should be brought to bear at a larger scale to create difference, to create opportunity and difference, a difference for, for New York City at large um, at a different scale. And I, I think that I can do that. I think my experience, both again, both personally and professionally, uh, give me give me some experiences that can be scaled in a different way. And so that that's part of why I feel like I, I'm, I'm ready to do this. I also, I'm, I'm just, I'm tired of kind of, of waiting for uh, elected officials to, to do the right thing around the, the most marginalized communities. And I'm kind of tired of waiting for people to, to step in and act. And I'm also tired of having low expectations. So, you know, as, as we struggle with the, the, ongoing erosion of our democracy on a national scale and, and look around and think about what we can do more to sort of help stem the tide. I think this is my this is my big act. This is the thing that I'm doing to step in and, and try to make a difference. And while I mentioned your role at Phipps Neighborhoods, you know, I don't want to limit just, you know, for our listeners, uh, that that's your only experience. You've you've also been connected with uh, different administrations and served in several capacities. Can you let our listeners know a little about what else you've done? Sure, sure. Um, so I, you know, during actually during the, the Clinton administration, I was um, a founder with a group of other folks um, in Boston of a national early childhood organization that is in its 25th, that is celebrating its 25th year anniversary as we speak, uh, that that organization, Jumpstart, uh, was an early childhood organization that, or is an organ, early childhood organization that pairs and trains college students to work with uh, UPK and and Head Start students to help build literacy skills. And at, at the same time, that the training of the college students helps to build the the pipeline for folks who might be interested in exploring teaching careers. And so that was one of the things I did early on. I, I worked as part of the Bloomberg administration, actually, under the Department of Education. I, I came in as part of the transition team initially when Joe Klein first came in as, as chancellor. And uh, in that capacity, I was responsible for what was then called the specialized populations and creating the, the plan for those uh, for those populations. I that, that role got narrowed to focus primarily on special education and ELL students, English language learners. And I was the uh, I was the one sort of behind the successful uh, effort to to block the English only initiatives in in the school system at that point in time. And then I went on actually to help create the Office of Youth Development as a, as the number two person there. Um, most recently, with the De Blasio administration, in my current capacity at at, at Fifth Neighborhoods, I have served under several on several different commissions. Uh, most notably, the uh, Community Schools Advisory Board and the Nonprofit Resiliency Committee. So I, you know, I have a lot, a lot, a vast array of experience both on the front lines in terms of creating and, and developing programs and services for communities in community, uh, but also on the larger scale policy level as well. So from working 
you know, uh, in different capacities under Bloomberg and under de Blasio. You know, I, I just want to separate them out for now and start with uh, the most recent, the current mayor, de Blasio. Where, you know, what did you learn from, you know, from what you've seen and what you've experienced in that administration that you feel has been done right and that has not been done right, that has been done wrong, that you would do differently? Well, you know, that's a that's a really good question. I think that, you know, there was a lot of hope at the beginning of the de Blasio administration. And I, I think that New York was very excited about his tenure. And, and he has been effective in terms of the if you look at the expansion of the UPK and if you look at expanding of the, the paid, of paid sick leave and, and reducing the stop and frisk policy, those those things are really good starts. Um, I, I think that there's a lot more that needs to be done. The, the fact that it's taken as long as it's taken to provide equity for early childhood teachers, the UPK teachers, uh, we run we run UPK classrooms at Phipps neighborhoods, and our, our teachers make tens of thousands of dollars less than uh, the DOE UPK teachers doing the same job with, with, with more resources. Um, I think that the relationships between the police and, and, and our communities has have not actually gotten stronger, and, and there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, I also think that there's a there's been an execution problem, and, and this is where I think that my experience as an executive of large organizations would actually serve me well. Uh, I I understand that it's not enough to 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 declare a policy or declare a change and and expect that it will be implemented from the top down. I understand what it takes to inspire and engage and involve the folks who are actually doing the service delivery or doing the implementation and, and what it takes to help them understand the role that they play and, and get their buy-in in, in that work. And so, you know, for me, I think my approach would most definitely be one that would give everyone everyone a sense of having a seat at the table and being involved in the implementation of things that actually will lift and improve all of New York City. So you just touched briefly uh, in that answer on the relations, you know, the, the difficulties of uh, fostering good relations between the police and certain communities. I just go back a few weeks to when Bloomberg spoke at a church uh, and apologized for his earlier stance on stop and frisk. What was your reaction to that? Um, well, you know, I, I, I appreciate the, the acknowledgement of that. Um, I I think that it's hard to, um, undo the harm that has been done as a result of, of that policy. Um, and, and the, the, the lives and the families and communities that have been, been hurt as a result. Um, you know, in, in terms of his, the context for that, that apology and his, his current run, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in the the democratic process and and, in all of our rights and ability to engage in the electoral process. So more more power to him on that regard. I'm happy to see another candidate step up to challenge um, to challenge Trump. Uh, But I also think it's really important and for me, it's really important how we go about doing that and, and engaging the community and really, really making the case to, to voters and having folks, being able to be responsive to people in communities and being able to respond to what they're looking for and what their needs are and hear their voices, I think is critical. And that's how I'm running my campaign. And that's what what I'm hoping to be able to do. And you know, why I'm doing what I'm doing right now. And, you know, since Bloomberg has now officially announced, there has been, you know, pushback. There are people who are saying he's 
essentially trying to buy the presidential uh uh, you know, to buy the presidency. And this was, uh, you know, I, you know, I have to full disclosure. I work with Bill Thompson. We ran against him back in 09 and Bloomberg <laughs> spent over a hundred million. We were considerably less than that. And a lot of people thought there's no way Thompson could win based on going up against right. that. We still came within five points. You know, Reggie's going to look at me and think you're still bitter over this. Uh, <laughs> uh, but when you hear about, you know, those concerns, do you think that uh, Bloomberg is the right candidate to move this country forward? Well, you know, I, I got to say, I, I don't think I don't think you can buy uh, elections. I, I, you know, and, and one of the things I find interesting is that uh, during his tenure, I believe, as mayor, at one point he was asked about running for, for president. And, and I believe that he actually said something like, I have the greatest job in the world. Why would I run for president? Um, if I'm not mistaken. You, you, you probably know better than I. So, you know, my take is I, I'm, I've got my eye on that prize. I've got my eye on, on, on what Bloomberg at one point considered the, the greatest job in the world. And, and that's what I'm focused on focused on right now. Yeah, I also think of something that I believe Tish James or New York State Attorney General had talked about at one point about the challenges of being a woman of color seeking office and fundraising. And, you know, we do have a, a good number of women who are running to become president of the United States. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, do you think it's easier for a woman to become mayor of New York City than president of the United States? <laughs> Listen, I don't think women have it easy in any uh, regard, and, and that's actually one of the reasons why um, women will be the center or at, or at the center of my campaign. Um, I really believe that we, if we do better by women, uh, women do better by their families and women do better by community. And so if we, we do as a city do better by women, New York City at large as a whole will do better. Whether or not it's, it's harder uh, for, for a woman to be elected mayor of New York City. We'll see. I, you know, I have every intention of you know, running a very grassroots campaign and speaking to the community and the needs of the community and the interests of the community. And, and I think that the, the power of the vote, it, you know, that will speak volumes in and of itself. I'm hoping also, obviously, to, to get folks to the polls that, that wouldn't normally engage in that process because they don't see themselves reflected in the process and they don't see themselves reflected in the leadership of the city. I think there's a lot of power behind um, women and women of color in New York City. And if we can inspire and tap into that voting block, I think uh, I think I'm going to be able to give the boys a run for their money. And to appeal to them, to get them out, these people who might not necessarily be even thinking about government or politics or even the, the folks who wouldn't normally show up at the polls, what are one or two of the issues that you want to focus on? What are the ones that you want to touch on that you that will appeal to them? Sure. I mean, I, I so, like I said, I think, you know, women's issues, right? I think if we're talking about women as heads of household um, and looking at uh, child care issues and the, the tax burdens of child care issues, or if we're looking at wages and, and inequity in wages, discrimination and harassment in the workplace and what's happening right now in the city council with the staffers, um, is is an abomination. Uh, you know, women need someone in office who is going to advocate for them, who has shared their lived experience and can speak to it from a professional, from a personal perspective, and is not going to equivocate on the the harm that is done. And so, um, I think that is going to be a core, a central tenet of tenant of my campaign. 
as well as issues around around the decriminalization of poverty. I, I think that some of the things that are happening, uh, whether, whether it's the Truro lady in the train station being harassed and arrested, or whether it's, uh, you know, advocating around bail reform or the separation of, of mental health issues from the from the, the police department and from policing. Um, I think these are all issues that impact some communities uh, much more disproportionately than others, and that would speak to that segment of the voting block that I'm, I'm hoping to motivate and get to the polls. So we've got just about a minute or two left, and you know I'm going to throw out a hypothetical there. If President Trump is elected to a second term and Diane Morales is elected as New York City's mayor, what's the message you would want to send to the president? Not in my city. <laughs> I, I, um, I mean, you know, it is unfortunate that we are in this position, um, but I would, as mayor of New York City, hold fast to my beliefs and my values and protecting um, the citizens of New York City against the Trumpian policies that are eroding our democracy. And, and so I would very happily uh, stand up to him and, and take him on if need be in order to protect our city. And Diane Morales, how can people learn more about you and your campaign? Sure. Um, people can uh, check out our website at Diane Morales, D-I-A-N-N-E-M-O-R-A-L-E-S, the number 4NYC.com. My Twitter handle is Diane, the number 4NYC. Instagram, Diane Morales, 4NYC, the number And I'm also on Facebook, Diane Morales for NYC. Diane Morales, thank you so much for joining me, Jeff Simmons, here on WBAI today. Thanks, Jeff, for having me, and happy holiday. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. So... uh we just talked with Diane Morales, one of the uh, two uh, women candidates right now who've announced as uh, to that they're running for mayor. The other one actually, interestingly, lives just one block over from uh, Diane Morales in Bed-Stuy. So we have two women from uh, Brooklyn who are running. And obviously, uh, there are some other better-known names here in the city right now, uh, but they have not officially declared, but heavily rumored, such as our New York City Council Speaker, our Brooklyn Borough President, and our Bronx Borough President. Just uh, and our city controller, uh, just to name a few. You are listening to WBAI uh, 99.5 FM. This is an extended version of Driving Forces today. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. Uh, during the last hour of the show, between 7 and 8, close around, uh, more closely around 7.30 to 8, I will have the phone lines open. Uh, but... Uh, I uh, do want to mention, uh, as I started at the top of this show, that I was able to line up uh, uh, some wonderful tickets uh, for anyone who's listening who would like to contribute to support BAI and become a BAI buddy. If you're new, if you just tuned in and you don't know what a BAI buddy is, I'm one of them. I basically just signed up through my credit card. I give a recurring uh, donation every month. You can give $5, $10, uh, $20 a month. Just go gets taken right, you know, assessed right on your credit card. But what it does is it supports BAI in a recurring way. It keeps our local programming on this non-commercial, non-corporate station that's been around for 60 years where you can hear, as Reggie noted earlier, a diverse range of voices and opinions. It keeps us on the air, we hope, for another 60 years. And uh, if you contribute during this three hours or even later on, but you say you're doing it in the name of driving forces, you can get a pair of tickets uh, to see Robert, the Roberta Pickett Sextet 
play tribute to the music of legendary jazz pianist and NPR radio host Marion McPartland, who's a close friend of Pickett's who passed away in 2013 at the age of 95. Uh, Pickett is going to be joined in concert by a five-time Grammy-nominated vocalist, uh, Karen Allison. And this is going to take place at Flushing Town Hall next Friday, December 6th. Uh, and if you would like to support BAI with a, any type of donation, but I'd love for you to become a BAI buddy. I'm trying to get five to ten during the show. It would be fantastic if we're able to get that. There are multiple ways you can do that. You can call our pledge line, and that's 516-620-3602. You can go online to give to wbai.org. And you can also text the letters WBAI, not difficult to remember, WBAI, to the number 41444. And it would be wonderful if you could do that in the name of the show, but not just about driving forces. If you, if there are any shows here that you have listened to, whether it's Leonard Lopate or whether you're listening, listening to Max Schmidt or, or Reggie, you, you were on, what was it, Midnight the other night? Uh, yes, Midnight from Tuesday, yes. If you are listening to Reggie at Midnight's and you, and he is just entertaining you when you can't fall asleep or you're on the road uh, driving. I'm trying to make it interesting. Yeah. Uh, then it would be wonderful for you to show your support. So as much as I'd love for you to show your support in the name of this show, there are so many others. I'm sure there is something for everyone. If you go online to WBAI.org, look at our schedule. You will see the diversity of programming. I mean, as Reggie talked about before, John John Kane, right before us, has an incredibly uh, different point of view than I do. But you know what? I love listening to him. Right before my show, uh, City Watch on Sundays at 6, I'm listening to, well, I'm commuting a portion of it so I don't hear the whole thing when I'm on the train, but I'm listening to Consabor Latino and I love getting here to listen to the music and the guests that they have on. If WBAI means something to you, give us a call. Pledge at 516-620-3602 and you will get tickets tonight, today to next uh, Friday's December 6th show by Roberta Pickett at Flushing Town Hall. We are going to be playing throughout this show some of the songs from her CD, One for Marion, which celebrates Marion McPartland. That is what the show is going to be about next Friday at Flushing Town Hall. And for those of you who don't know what Flushing Town Hall is, it's the last stop on the 7 train. It's a brisk walk, only a few blocks from the end of that 7 train. Uh, it is a historic venue, uh, and they have uh, one of the most popular events that they have every season is NEA, NEA Jazz Masters with uh, Jimmy Heath and a number of other. Uh, they just had six on stage a few weeks ago, always sold out. They regularly perform jazz, have jazz performances, and Robert, Roberta Pickett is their signature event this December. It's something you definitely will not want to miss. You are listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. I am your host, Jeff Simmons. This is Driving Forces. We're usually on from 5 uh, to 6 on Thursday nights, but Tonight, because it's Thanksgiving, Linda graciously allowed me to have several hours of programming. I hope everyone is enjoying the day off from work. If you had to work and you are listening to BAI, thank you for tuning in as well on this on this day. The weather is not as bad as uh, as we feared it might get. It's just been very windy. Uh, and as I checked the political news, there was not as much happening 
uh, as we've seen on many other days. Usually, by the way, for our listeners, I'm a former journalist. I knew what weeks like this were like. Usually on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, you dump the bad news. You put out all the bad news that you want to break because not as many people are paying attention. Did not see as much of that as I had thought. Even some uh, reporters I know were burning up Twitter last night saying, now's the time to check to see what people are going to dump as far as, as, as bad news. So again, you're listening to Driving Forces with me, Jeff Siemens, here on W. BAI. This show usually focuses on politics and policy. That brings us to brings me to our my next guest, Lindsay Boylan. She's running for New York's 10th congressional district against incumbent Jerry Nadler in the Democratic primary. This is one race, and this uh, covers this district covers the west side of Manhattan and parts of southern Brooklyn. This is one race that city and state. Uh, meet the media outlet said that everybody's going to be talking about. So I thought, let's bring Lindsay on and find out a little more about her. Lindsay, welcome to uh, WBAI. Thank you so much for having me. So why is this a race that everyone's going to be talking about? You know, this is this is selfish, I would say, but this is a, the heart of heart of the city. It's the heart of our economy. It's the heart of the culture. It's the place, the district with the most inequality, um, the most the most challenges to deal with and the grapple with. And it's a liberal district. This is a place where we should be making the changes, grappling with extreme inequality, dealing with climate change. We've got miles of coastline. And we have a prominent leader that's in the news a lot, um, and he's getting a lot of coverage, but we haven't been seeing the changes that we need to see for decades. Um, and we've been able to get a lot of coverage thus far because people are interested in hearing new voices and they're they're interested in change. So we've been we've been getting a lot of coverage, and it's it's what it's what people deserve in the district. And yeah, you know, I would have been one of your constituents, but I moved to uh, I guess your home your home borough because you were born in Queens, if I'm correct. Uh, my dad's from Queens, ah. so I spent my holidays and whatnot in Astoria. <laughs> so uh, I'm Jackson Heights. Uh, so uh, you know, I w- was an Upper West Sider for quite some time. How has the Upper West Side? You know, I, I'm looking at that neighborhood, but I know that the district covers uh, you know much more uh, broad uh, area. How has the constituency sure. and the needs changed that you might feel uh, that the incumbent has not responded to? Well, I mean, the, the district, if you look at the map itself, it's it's changed drastically in terms of the population. So it goes everywhere from Columbia University, basically, the main campus, uh, through the Upper side, as you mentioned, then Health Kitchen, which has changed drastically in the last almost 30 years. Um, there's this whole new development, as we know, with Hudson Yards. Uh, Chelsea is, particularly the west side of Chelsea, changed drastically. Um, Battery Park City, Tribeca, Wall Street's population has, you know, Lower Manhattan has doubled in size, basically, um, you know, in the last 10 or so years, and, you know, for reasons you can imagine. But the the population is a lot more diverse um, than it was. Um, it's, it's a lot younger. We have more uh, working women and working uh, families in the district, a lot more um, than there were even a decade ago, and, and, and that is reflected and I think the things people are concerned about, uh, whether we're talking about housing, we're talking about climate change, uh, we're talking about mental health and health care broadly. Um, there are a lot of people, when I knock on doors, um, who either don't know who, who represents them, they, they don't know who the congressman is, or 
um, they don't have a particular relationship. So, you know, I would have thought that it would be a challenge, um, particularly in some neighborhoods, but I'm, I'm overwhelmingly hearing positive feedback that people just want someone uh, who's going to listen to what the challenges are and really respond to those. And I think that that didn't, that didn't begin with our race. It didn't begin in our district. Uh, I think a lot of that began in the midterms, um, particularly when a lot of women got out and said, enough is enough. Things aren't changing in this country, not quickly enough, and we have huge challenges. This is the most unequal district, as I said, in the country, and you wouldn't think that in such a progressive liberal area, maybe the heart of the progressive culture in our country, and we got a lot of problems to deal with. Um, so I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm having fun when I'm door knocking. People are really positive, more than I thought they would be. And it's interesting that you say that because that's what was experienced in the district where I live with AOC, that a number of folks mm-hmm. had said – we, you know, we don't even know who, the, you know, who Joe Crowley is, if asked, uh, and that AOC, yeah. you know, I live in an area where there were so many posters and get out the vote events uh, connected to AOC. Uh, and I think yeah. that the Queens Democratic Party kind of took it for granted that he would just, you know, get another term. Everyone, you know, there's so much discussion now about the progressive movement and you know, a number of people being seen as possibly the next AOC. How do your sure. politics align with hers? Sure. Well, you know, one thing I would say is I can't be the next AOC. She's, she's incredible. I, you know, and I've, I've never found it a successful thing for me to try and be someone else, right? Um, I'm, a, I'm a mom of a young daughter. Um, I'm, I'm sort of at that place in my life. Um, but I am, I, I'm incredibly impressed by her, so I'll say that. Um, I would consider myself absolutely a progressive. Um, when you, I always thought I was pretty connected to what um, people were feeling and the concerns um, are in my community around me. But the act is, as you can imagine, of running for office, people are frustrated. They feel that they have not been heard. And there are a lot of pain points, um, whether we're, you know, when I, it sounds very vague and distant when we talk about inequality, but what we're really talking about is quality of life and people's, um, the idea and the, the, the vision that they have of being able to do better than their parents did and to take care of their parents when their parents retire, if their parents can retire. I mean, it's a whole life cycle, and that dream has really been called into question. You know, the, the whole concept of mobility, the whole concept of the future of our climate, the whole concept of... Um, student debt rates, medical debt rates. And I think where I would say that I'm very excited to serve with AOC is because she talks about these things. She talks about having student debt, um, and she talks about the, the, the drastic changes, the real significant changes that we need to make. And um, I would certainly count myself uh, amongst the, the, the group of leaders that are emerging that say we're not doing nearly enough. Um, and, and, and climate change was another issue that I believe I had read that you, was something that you were uh, addressing or concerned about. Yeah, yeah. So I had the, the privilege when I worked for the state of New York um, most recently as uh, Deputy Secretary for Economic Development. My portfolio also included housing, and it included um, the Office of Storm Recovery, uh, which is seven years on from Hurricane Sandy, still very much dealing with, um, you know, rebuilding funds, um, resiliency projects and the like, stuff that um, the city is doing equivalents of uh, for lower Manhattan, particularly in parts of Brooklyn and whatnot and other areas of the city. We have the energy and the passion, and we're talking about a Green New Deal, which I'm fully supportive of. 
what I think that I can add to the conversation, given my experience, is we need to be talking about very the very real um, the, the reality that our climate has already changed. And uh, for coastal cities like New York, um, but really across the country, we're dealing with more extreme weather and the impact of that. I also oversaw the state's recovery work in Puerto Rico, and there's no question we're going to see more extreme weather, more damage, and the people who are hardest hit and have the hardest time recovering are those with the fewest means. It's women, it's children, um, it's socioeconomically, um, it, it falls upon people who don't have other choices to go somewhere else to get away from things. And um, what I saw in helping um, the Puerto Rican government with, the, with, with our resources put together their um, uh, disaster request from the federal go- for the federal government was you have Puerto Rico fighting for, Cal- uh, you know, with California forest fire funds, with, with um, flooding in, in Texas. This is not how the federal government should work, this, especially for something that we can predict and expect will be happening increasingly. So at a very basic level, I think what I am very excited about and think is urgently important, particularly in the context of a, of a district that has miles of coastline, like the 10th Congressional District, is putting forth plans um, and new approaches to dealing with the reality we already have with climate change. In addition to reducing fossil fuels, in, a different, in addition to um, pushing for the private sector and for government to reflect the changes we need to make to stave off, um, you know, for further global warming, we need to deal with the reality we have now. And, and I spent a, a fair amount of my career doing that. I actually started in urban planning because I was um, fascinated um, and drawn to the questions of, of rebuilding after Hurricane Katrina. I did some, I did some relief work there during college in, in New Orleans. And that's, you know, what I spent a lot of my life thinking about. And, but what, what it's really about is how do you build cities? How do you um, create infrastructure? How do you shift government to actually help people? And I think we haven't been doing a lot of helping people as much as we have been creating legislation that goes nowhere. And you're also up against several other challengers, not, uh, you know, it's not just about uh, uh, Jerry Nadler in this case. How are you differentiating yourself? You know, I'm really focusing on what we're saying, what we're doing. Um, and so I'm not so worried about that. Um, you know, between people who talked about running and who have filed and then not filed, you know, SEC reports and the like, I think we've gotten at least three, you know, I think at least three people have decided not to run of the six or so that people mentioned. Um, my guess is that when we get to the ballot, it's going to be the congressman and I. Um, but, you know, I'm not really focused on. Um, being anything but positive to to other you know people in the race because you know I can't sit here and say we need change and we need to 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 do away with the sort of political machine and then give someone else a hard time so that's not what I'm focused on what I do my best work when I focus exclusively on the people I'm talking to um, and the work I need to to do to address the concerns that they have and to represent them well. So, <laughs> frankly, the, the more I uh, sort of turn the blinders on to really focus on people in the community and the problems, the better I do. And, and it's just, you know, that, that's been a, how I've been my whole life. So it's just, a, it's just, just the, the nature of it. 
So we've got I'm just competing against trying to be the best representative as I can be. And we've got just a few minutes left. Uh, something I asked sure. uh, a candidate here for uh, Assembly Boris Santos recently uh, was, you know, who he would not take money from for his campaign. Do you have any restrictions on on that when it comes to campaign yeah. contributions? Yeah, I'm not taking any corporate PAC money, um, which you know I won't take corporate PAC money um, throughout my career. So not just this. This people say, oh well, you know, you're in a challenger, so maybe you would get fewer. Over pack dollars, not going to take any. Um, I don't think that business directly should be involved in government um, decision making. Um, so none there, and no fossil fuel money. And uh, and I've taken a fossil fuel pledge. And you, you know, we have a new candidate uh, for president, uh, our former mayor Bloomberg. What are your uh, thoughts yes. on his uh, candidacy? You know, um, I think I think it's. I think it's going to be a hard run for him personally. I, uh, you know, I um, have have had a lot of respect for, you know, particularly with within, you know, my urban planning world, having spent a lot of my career in improvement districts and public parks for the work he, he he's done in those realms. And he's an innovator and he's funded a lot of nonprofits. I think it's going to be um, a hard moment. I, I think this is a moment in time where it is, it's, it's, it's a it's a challenge when you have what we've had three um, billionaires running for the Democratic ticket at some some point. If you include Howard Schultz, mm-hmm. and then we have a president who's a billionaire. <laughs> yeah, and then you have a president who's a billionaire or says he is or pretends to be. That's of six hundred billionaires in the country. I think at a moment in time where um, we're talking about extreme inequality and um, and and you know, if I could, you know stand on my soapbox to, to, for one more second about, you know, being in and running in the most unequal district in the country. Um, you know, poverty levels on the whole are down, but what has really grown is the extremes, right? We have extreme, extreme wealth, you know, that's really un, you know, quantifiable in terms of people's understanding, concentrated in the hands of a very, very small number of people. And then, you know, at, at lower economic levels, above poverty, um, quality of life has really gone down. Um, you know, if you're in the bottom 20% economically speaking as a kid, you have a less than 10% chance of doing better than your parents. The the bottom, um, quote unquote, bottom 40% of women have are going to live shorter lives than their own mothers. And this is a moment in time when we have record advances in in um, modern medicine. And it's it's purely because of access, accessibility. It's issues of mobility. It's issues of quality of life. Uh, we're really failing far too many people, and there's a lot of resentment. And I think we're at a moment in time where we need to respond to that constructively. I think it's going to be really hard um, for for um, for, uh, for for many of these billionaire candidates, the, the former mayor included, to speak to people in a way that resonates. Um, you know, separating that from his ability as a manager. I think you know, running for president, people need to feel like they know and understand where you're coming from and where you're going. Um, you know, we have a while more before the first caucus and primaries, but, um, you know, I think there's, it's hard to, um, ignore the, the, the anger that people feel right now and, um, and reasonably so. And I think that's going to be a hard path for, well, it's been a hard path for, for everyone. I think that's why you're seeing, um, responses from progressive, um, the pres- progressive presidential candidates truly respond <clears throat> to what, what people are, what people are feeling, and I'm and I'm hearing that in my district. So um, that's 
That's what I would say. And Lindsay Borland, how can people learn more about your campaign and you? Well, you can go to our website, uh, lindsayboyland.com. Um, but really, I'd love to meet as many people as possible. I'm on Twitter. I'm on social media. It's my name, Lindsay with an E. Um, and I'm just trying to get out as much as I can. I'd love to chat with people. I'd love to come to schools. I'd love to come to small events and things. Um, you know, the more people meet us, the more, um, you know, the more our movement builds, because I think that's really the biggest thing. And I'm really excited about it. And I'm appreciative of this opportunity. And I'll come on any on any podcast, any radio uh, show in the future and, and, and meet as many people as we can and listen. Lindsay Boyland, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you so much. So uh, I do want to note for our listeners, though, that, uh, you know, Lindsay's running against uh, incumbent uh, Jerry Nadler, the congressman. Uh, I do want to point out that for um, what is this? We're in uh, November now over a year. We have reached out, uh, my former co-host and I, and then just myself, reached out to Jerry Nadler's office to ask if he could be a guest on this show. They do not get back. I point that out. We reached out. I even emailed his wife at one point, who I used to work with at the city controller's office. They're AWOL. They've not responded at all. We've tried to ask him questions. We've tried to get him on WBAI on this show. So it's been disappointing, but you know what? It says something when candidates don't even, candidates or incumbents don't value WBAI enough to get back to us even. I mean, I'll say there are a number of other electeds. Their offices respond, trying to get them on. Often it's the schedules. Here's one where it's just been AWOL. It's a little disappointing on that case. So I have been playing music throughout the show from Roberta Pickett, and she now is joining us uh, on WBAI. I'm going to be playing this throughout our extended show today. Remember, uh, listen to her interview because you're going to love this concert next week at Flushing Town Hall. Uh, so uh, welcome to WBAI, Roberta. Thank you. I, I was just listening in, and um, <laughs> it, it's just uh, uh, very inspiring stuff you, you, your guest was talking about. Uh, it's it's fun, funny to flip over now to something so different. <laughs> I know. We normally talk about politics and policy, but because this is a special Thanksgiving uh, show, I also went, you know, took our theme music, put it aside, and I'm playing your beautiful music from your beautiful CD, One for Marion, Celebrating Marion McPartland. Uh, and I just thought with your concert next week and the opportunity for listeners to be able to secure some tickets, uh, it would be great to be able to hear from you uh, you know, about who you are and about your musical influences. We've got about uh, 10 minutes, uh, and then I'm going to play one of your songs at the end of the hour into the next one. But tell me first, or tell our listeners, who is Roberta Pickett? Who is Roberta Pickett? Well, I'm, I'm a jazz pianist, uh, composer, arranger. Um, I'm a person. Um, <laughs> uh, I've been um, playing. Uh, I've been a professional musician uh, for, for many, many years. Um, I love all kinds of jazz. Um, I play more mainstream type of jazz. I, uh, I also um, play uh, in, in uh, several uh, bands uh, that, that are more... Um, I don't like to use the term avant-garde, but uh, a, a little less mainstream, let's say, uh, a little more um, improvisation-based. Uh, so I just, uh, you know, love to play uh, all kinds of jazz and music. Um, and if you want to know more about me, I do have a website, uh, robertajazz.com. And uh, that, that's, in a nutshell, who I am. Uh, I grew up in New York. Um, in, I grew in up Queens? in Queens, went, went, went to high school in Manhattan, went to Hunter College High School, went to New England Conservatory. That was many years ago. Um, and uh, right now, right now, I am a host of um, 
about 12 family members and friends um, who are downstairs <laughs> in my living room just finishing up Thanksgiving dinner. That's who I am right now. <laughs> you just said, I'm stepping out for about 10 minutes. I'll be back. No one bother no. me. Exactly. They're all having a good time. They're fine without me. <laughs> so talk a little about, your, you know, this concert next week at Flushing Town Hall. Uh, talk a little about, you know, why you wanted to do this to celebrate Marion McPartland. Well, as you know, because you've been playing the record, uh, back in 2016, I, I released a record of some of Marion's compositions. And Marion was such a good friend to me and a big supporter. She, she supported a lot of young musicians, uh, particularly female musicians. And uh, she really cared about young musicians and she was very, very encouraging. Uh, in fact, the first time I appeared on her show in the early 90s, I didn't even have a CD released. And I can tell you how challenging it is to get anything going without a, without a record. Uh, and, and yet she just liked the way I played, and that was enough for her to invite me on her national syndicated radio show, um, you know, without, without even the credential of, of, um, uh, of, of having a record out under my own name. Um, so I feel that she is somebody who's done, who, who did so much for the music. She passed away, I, I think, in 2014. And she's done so much for the music that I wanted to do something for her. And, you know, Marion McPartland was known as a great pianist. She was certainly very well known for her national public radio show, Piano Jazz, which ran for over 30 years. She had every pianist uh, of every stripe on her show. Uh, I mean, really, I don't think there's a contemporary... Um, uh, jazz pianist that, that you could name that did not appear on her on her show at some point. Um, so those are the things she was known for. But she was also a wonderful composer, and a lot of people don't know that. And she often said that she regretted that people didn't pay more attention to her compositions. So a couple of years ago, I released this record of of, of her compositions, which I arranged. I sort of rearranged them for a sextet with uh, saxophones and trumpet doubling on woodwinds, uh, you know, flute and clarinet and flugelhorn. Uh, and, um, and then Karen Allison was kind enough to be a guest on one of the compositions. And uh, because she also was a good friend of, of Marion, she loved Marion. She was on Marion's show, even, even though Karen is, is, of course, a vocalist, one, one of the preeminent jazz vocalists of our time. Uh, she had also appeared on Marion's show on piano jazz. So she knew Marion very well. And so I put together this project, uh, reinterpreting Marion's music for Sextet, and it went very well. And uh, it, it only, uh, you know, we had a, some gigs at the time, but it only took three years for me to book, book a date at Washington Hall. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really thrilled. Um, I'm thrilled. It's a beautiful space uh, with, with a great piano, and uh, it's just a lovely room. And I'm, I'm really uh, excited to be back there. I, I think the last time I played at Flushing Town Hall was back in 1994. It was a long time ago. So I'm very excited to be back there in that, in that beautiful space. And Karin will be joining us on several compositions uh, on December 6th. So, so I'm, I'm very excited uh, to, to have this opportunity to uh, perform this live tribute uh, to, to Marion. What would you say her legacy is? Well, her legacy is, is huge. Um, she was a, a pioneering jazz pianist as, as a woman, as a woman piano player, as a woman in jazz. She was a pioneer. Um, so that, in its, that, that alone would be enough to guarantee her a place in the pantheon of, of jazz musicians. Um, but then on top of that, 
I think her radio show was a r- remarkable legacy because what I what I loved about her show is that she she made the music accessible to the layperson. You know, she would she would talk, I, in fact just recently I was listening to her um, her interview with McCoy Tyner and uh, you know she's going on like oh these things you do these uh, these skills and such and and uh, you know she 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 drew out of him uh, some some uh, explanation and discussion of of his approach and his concept and it was and and she just had a a real gift for that for for eliciting from the musicians she was speaking to some uh insight about their their approach that that would a musician would of course find fascinating but that non-musicians could appreciate and i think she she helped bring a greater appreciation of jazz to a general audience by doing that and and i think that was a real gift to the music and uh, Roberta, we've got just about a minute left. What uh, for anyone who's on the fence and thinking, "Oh, maybe I want to do this." I'm not sure. Next Friday night, what do you want them to know about your concert next week? Well, it's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be a lot of variety. We have the phenomenal Karen Allison, and you know, and a rare opportunity to hear her in this. Concert. We have um, a, a great sextet of world class musicians. Um, playing some beautiful tunes. Marion wrote some very lyrical, elegant music, uh, which we've, we've modernized. So I think there's, there's I, I hate to use this cliche, but I would say there's really something for everybody. Um, you know, if you love lyrical, traditional jazz, straight ahead jazz, if you love your jazz a little more adventurous, um, I, I think it's, it's just going to be a, a great show of, of quality music that anybody could enjoy. And again, Roberta, what is your website? My website is robertajazz.com, and I'm also on Twitter and Facebook, of course. Roberta Pickett, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you so much, Jeff. So also, if you want to learn more, you can go to Flushing Town Hall's website at flushingtownhall.org. O-R-G. I listened a little earlier to this wonderful interview that Roberta had done on NPR. Uh, I want to say it was like about seven, eight years ago. It was just a beautiful interview with her. They called her a world-class jazz artist. She also swings on standards. She sings, too, as I uh, actually experienced a little at a um, at the launch event that Flushing Town Hall had for this, uh, this season. Again, um, we're going to play one of her songs in just a few moments, but uh, I want you to remember that uh, we do have five pairs of tickets if you become a BAI buddy uh, in the name of this show. Uh, you know, to see Roberta's concert at Flushing Town Hall uh, next Friday, December sixth. Uh, and this concert is celebrating the uh, legacy and life of Marion uh, McPartland. Uh, so when we uh, play the song, if you are listening to that song and you have a few uh, moments, you can pledge to 516-620-3602, or you can go online. I was working most of the afternoon after I got home from volunteering, listening to this uh, beautiful CD. Uh, it's just very relaxing and wonderful. You can go online to give to that's the number two WBAI dot O-R-G. Uh, or you can call again at 516-620-3602 or even just text the letters WBAI to the number 41444. So as we close out this hour, I'd like to play one of the songs on this CD. It's the title song, One for Marion.
that was called One for Marion from Roberta Pickett's uh, CD, uh, One for Marion Celebrating Marion McPartland. For our longtime listeners, I'm sure you recognize that name because she started her radio career here at WBAI, had a weekly uh, show in the 60s in which she featured recordings and interviews with a number of guests. Uh, so uh, the reason we're also playing... Uh, these songs by Roberta Pickett uh, uh, from her CD, One for Marion, is because we have secured for you, our listeners, five tickets, five or five pairs of tickets to her uh, Roberta Pickett's performance next Friday, December 6th at Flushing Town Hall. If you are able to uh, show some love today on this wonderful day of giving to WBAI, I'm Jeff Simmons, your host. Uh, during a three-hour extended uh, uh, driving forces today, we're lightening it up a bit, uh, not just focusing on politics and policy. Um, but also playing some beautiful music by Roberta Pickett. And so if you are interested, before we get to our, our next guest, I uh, just want to repeat our uh, pledge lines. If you're at home and enjoying this on this uh, beautiful day, uh, give a call to 516-620-3602. You can pledge in the name of this show, Driving Forces, and say you would like a pair of those tickets uh, to Roberta Pickett's concert at Flushing Town Hall next Friday. So we talked to two folks who are seeking office in the first hour uh, today. So I thought what I would like to do during this hour is talk to some of the nonprofits, uh, some of the organizations that are out in force this week uh, or making a difference in the lives of New Yorkers and showing support for others. I thought I'd bring you a few of those voices. And one of those uh, is Project Renewal, uh, which is a homeless services nonprofit that runs a social purpose catering company called City Beats, City Beat Kitchens, uh, that cooked Thanksgiving dinners to serve at homeless shelters and supportive housing throughout the city. So that brings me to my first guest this hour, Barbara Hughes, executive director of City Beat Kitchens at Project Renewal. Welcome to WBAI. Thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting me to talk to you today. So talk a little first, a little more broadly about what Project Renewal does. Well, we've been we've been around uh, for over 50 years, uh, really providing comprehensive comprehensive services to people who are homeless. And that's in the healthcare area. We have medical vans on the road. We have a mammogram van on the road. Uh, we do um, various uh, supportive housing programs. We run seven shelters for the city of New York. We have permanent housing. And then we also uh, create jobs for people, which is what I do at Project Renewal. I, I am in charge of all the food programs that we have. And uh, uh, we, I think, are unique in that we're really meeting the person where they are and uh so we have all of that that those comprehensive services if someone needs a job right away we're there for them if they have medical needs we're there and we have a way to put a roof over someone's head no matter what kind of situation that they're in so, and I can attest to the quality of the food from City Beat Kitchens because uh, our firm, uh, Anat Gerstein, had uh, City Beat Kitchens cater one of our uh, our midsummer uh, barbecues one year, and it was just beautiful. Can you talk a little about City Beat Kitchens and what exactly this program is? Right, and I I was thinking that um, you're, we're doing this on the radio, so I should say that's uh, Beat with two E's. 
Yes, if, yes, if that's a very, very good point. For us. Very good point. If you're looking for us. Uh, well, we, um, we had a culinary training program. Um, that was the first, first program that we did that had anything to do with food. And we identified that there were, uh, for sure, uh, jobs in the culinary field, and this was over 25 years ago. We started with the culinary training, and a few years into that, um, people started, you know, mostly with our internal programs and some of our nonprofit partners saying, you know, could you do um, some lunch for us, or, or do you do breakfast? And, you know, one thing led to another. We started doing little things here and there. Um, we put together a business plan, and... We started doing um, catering as a business, a social purpose enterprise, which which would um, create jobs for people and bring money, uh, revenue back into our training program so we could uh, support our training program. And um, fast forward 25 years, uh, we, we have a foundation of institutional uh, customers that we do contracted work with, which is uh, mostly other nonprofits that run shelters in the in the uh, in the city, uh, and uh, some smaller programs. We have a senior center or two, and some permanent housing where people don't have kitchens to cook their own food. Um, we also uh, have developed another division of the catering, which is events, which is what you were talking about. Mm. We uh, we cater all kinds of events. We're a full-service catering company. And so, yeah, I do not, you know, and I apologize if I mix up City Beat Kitchens and Culinary Arts training uh, training program. Uh, City Beat Kitchens uh, also serves meals to shelters and other institutions serving New Yorkers in need. What has been the, the process uh, this week? What have you done? What do you do around Thanksgiving? Well, we've been preparing for at least a month um, just planning what our day is going to look like because come Thanksgiving, especially in our institutions division, everybody wants to eat at the same time. So uh, we had 2,500 meals we had to prepare for that were delivered today to all of our customers. Um, all of our drivers were on the road because everybody wants to eat at 12 o'clock. And uh, we had to get those hot meals um, to everyone um, it, that's from turkey and stuffing and macaroni and cheese and greens, uh, pies, um, the, the whole works. Uh, and so it takes a good week, um, more than a week just to talk to our customers and find out exactly what they want. Um, but it take, it took a lot of, uh, preparing, which we started, oh, over the weekend, just roasting all the turkeys, preparing all the food and, uh, it's out, and I checked a couple hours ago, and everybody's fed and, and um, happy. So uh, a number of the individuals who work at City Beat Kitchens are, I would say, graduates of the culinary training, uh, or culinary arts training program. What's the training program's uh, job placement track record? Well, we're really proud of the fact that of, of the people who graduate from the program, uh, 85% of those people are placed in jobs. And um, if if you don't graduate and you sort of uh, along the six-month uh, period of time that we that you go through our training, if you kind of slip and fall in some way, if you have to, if you're a woman and you have to stop because your child care is not in place, 
we're going to plug you back in and and uh our door is always open to continue training but it's 85 percent and um uh that is above the national average for culinary programs nationwide and way above um programs that that train people in general and uh, from what I understand, that I mean, people are placed in some very prestigious uh, entities and prestigious restaurants. Mm-hmm. We have been working, for instance, with Del Posto for a very long time. Uh, I just found out, actually, that somebody's graduating from our program next week on December 5th, and he did an internship at Del Posto. There wasn't a spot for him, but they found a um, job for him at a sister restaurant of Del Posto called Felidia mm, that's yes. been around forever, oh, yes. <laughs> and he's he's got a job there already. Um, we're with the Bowery Restaurant Group that has uh, one of the restaurants is Cook Shop. We have an intern there right now that's graduating. So um, we have we're very careful about who our partners are because we want them to be people that support us as well as you know, us giving them a well-trained person to continue an internship with. Um, but we're we're really lucky and honored to have some of our uh, employee partners that are, are of the level that they are. And talk a little about some of the challenges. I mean, I'm gathering uh, there may be challenges with uh, uh, get, with funding, uh, for instance. Well, there's there's always challenges with funding, especially our culinary training program and Although our social enterprise, City Beat Kitchens, feeds some revenue back into the training program, there's always a gap. Uh, I mean, the, the institutional side of our catering, we're, we're the nonprofit uh, competing with for-profit companies who are much bigger than us that can, you know, often outbid us for a contract um, because uh, – that's just the way it goes, and we, we have to not only have a mission that, that's great, but we have to have quality service and food uh, to back that up. So, you know, at the end of the day, um, there's always a gap. So we, we try, to, try to fill that gap and go out and look for uh, as much funding as we can. I, I have to give a special shout-out to the City Council of uh, New York City because they have been supporters of ours for a very long time. Uh, Speaker Johnson is now, uh, Council Member Deutsch, Council Member Levin. Uh, they have been great, great friends of our culinary training program. We hope they are in the future. And uh, But it would be great to find an angel to help us. Um, maybe that's a good thing to ask for on this day of all days. <laughs> it is the giving season. Uh, yeah. Annually. Uh, you know, we've got just about a minute or so left. Annually, uh, City Beats provides about how many meals to, to New Yorkers? Uh, I, we say it's about uh, 3 million meals a, uh, a year. Uh, and that's to our institutional customers and our events. It, we're adding another um, couple thousand meals, uh, which are very uh, specialized, of course. Um, but yeah, we're fe- we're fe- feeding three million people that are um, are in the shelter system and and other housing a year. And Barbara Hughes' toughest question I always ask: How can people learn more about your organization? They can go to our website projectrenewal.org. dot um, org. They can also go to citybeateekitchens.org. dot um, org. We're at Project Renewal on Twitter. Um, 
uh, go find us, and um, and we're there for you um, to do an event or um, to get support. Barbara Hughes, Executive Director of City Beat Kitchens at Project Renewal, thank you for joining me here on WBAI this afternoon. Thank you so much. And again, as Barbara mentioned, it's City Beat, B-E-E-T, Kitchens at Project Renewal. This is a very worthy organization. If you get a chance, you should definitely check it out. You have been listening to WBAI's Driving Forces this Thanksgiving. This is an extended uh, show today, three hours. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. Uh, and this hour, I'm bringing you a few of the voices of nonprofits and organizations that are making a difference in New York City. So, uh, you know, I hope you enjoy the show. I hope you are a long time or even a new listener at WBAI, because one of the things that I, I do want to uh, do on this day of giving thanks is also to give thanks for the folks here at WBAI who've welcomed this show and welcomed me over the last, uh, I'll say it's about a year and a half now, because I started with City Watch over the week. Weekends and then started working on this show. I'm a volunteer, and that's why I enjoy uh, being here and being a part of BAI. Uh, uh, we've been around for 60 years. It's non-commercial, non-corporate. And uh, for those of you who are familiar with what took place recently on October 7th when uh, a rogue faction of Pacifica suddenly uh, cut off our local programming, uh, it was incredibly distressing, and a number of folks stood up in support of BAI, not just those who volunteered here or worked here, but longtime listeners and advocates and a few elected officials like Brooklyn Borough President uh, Eric Adams and uh, uh, City Council Member Lori Cumbo, who really, you know, lobbied for us, uh, lobbied isn't the right word, but campaigned for us, whatever word you want to use, advocated for us to bring, uh, to get this local programming back. And what was really frustrating uh, to us was that we had just started our fundraising drive a few days earlier and we it, it kicked in and we were doing really well so then for the month that we were off we lost all that revenue that would have been coming in all that support from our listeners because that's what we rely on i mean when you listen to bai notice there aren't commercials no i mean there are our own spots that we create uh you know to promote some of the shows but you're not hearing coca-cola or google or you know or microsoft or you know or any of the car companies or tobacco companies or any or liquor companies you're not hearing any of those ads on here because we're not corporate we're commercial free and we are supported by our listeners so if you're at home today on this day where you're feeling generous where you, you know you're surrounded by friends and family and loved ones and and you know it, you realize today is the start of the giving season and tomorrow everyone's going to go shopping you know before you even do that think about just setting aside some money, a recurring donation uh, over the next year and beyond, hopefully, to WBAI. If we've meant something to you in the past, we can mean something to you in the future. And so there are th three ways you could do this today. You can go online to give to WBAI.org. You can pledge at our phone number, and that's 516-620-3602. Or if you've got your smartphone, just text the letters WBAI to the number 41444, and you can make a contribution that way. And as I've been talking about throughout the show today, uh, if you would like to receive a gift, you can, in the name of the show, Driving Forces, when you pledge your support, you can ask for a pair of tickets to see Roberta Pickett uh, perform 
uh, at Flushing Town Hall on Friday, December 6th in celebration of Marion McPartland. And for those of you who just tuned in, you may, and if you're longtime listeners of BAI, you know that Marion McPartland had uh, a radio career in the 60s. She had a weekly show here on WBAI, and we're playing her music throughout the show. You're going to hear that uh, another one of their tunes uh, at the end of this hour as well uh, that I hope you enjoy. So this hour, I've said I'm going to talk about uh, nonprofits who are making a difference. And one of the big issues that a lot of nonprofits are going to be working on in the coming months involves the 2020 census. I just uh, sat in, in an interview a few days ago. Uh, in which the leader of this organization, Community Resource Exchange, had talked about some of the challenges that nonprofits and, and grassroots organizations are going to face in the coming months when the census uh, starts in early 2020. So joining me now is George Shea, Senior Consultant at Community Resource Exchange, who is involved with the organization's census work. Welcome to WBAI, George. Thank you. Hi, Jeff. So first, for our listeners, can you just talk a little about what Community Resource Exchange does? Sure. So CRE is a nonprofit consulting firm. Uh, we provide strategies and tools to build sustainable, high-performing social sector organizations, um, primarily focused on uh, organizations fighting poverty as well as kind of advancing equity within their communities. And how is Community Resource Exchange involved in the census work? Yeah, so CRE is actually part of a, a broad-based statewide coalition, uh, New York Counts 2020. Um, it's a group that um, includes all kinds of nonprofits as well as city agencies, really focused on ensuring that New Yorkers, uh, particularly those that have been historically undercounted in the census, um, can fully maximize their participation um, in next year's census. And so we are involved in that committee um, and really working alongside other nonprofits to make sure that they have the capacity, uh, the knowledge, and the know-how um, to be able to execute on their own census strategies. So, I mean, this is something that, you know, I can say I'm familiar with having uh read up a lot on this, but many people might not realize that this census coming up is facing a number of challenges, especially as people, uh, you know, as we want to try to get as accurate account as possible. What are some of the challenges that are facing uh, you know, organizations, uh, uh, you know, and just the census overall as far as getting an accurate count? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, at least in the last year or so, um, I hadn't been paying attention to the census. Um, and it really was brought to my attention um, earlier this year in a lot of conversations around um, the citizenship question um, and the administration's kind of desire to include that as part of the census. And while we were successful in ensuring that that question is not involved and not included in the survey um, for next year, um, there's still quite a bit of fear and distrust of the government. And so I think generally overall, there's also a, a lack of awareness about the importance of participation in the census. A lot is at stake. Um, if there is an undercount, um, this will have implications for federal funding, for public services and infrastructure, um, as well as potential loss of congressional seats. And I know at least for New York, there's uh, the risk of losing one or even two congressional seats. And so I think New York is also uniquely challenged by um, its diversity, right? So it's one of the strengths of um, our communities here is just how diverse 
um, it is. Um, but given the um, the languages that are spoken uh, across the city, um, and and also quite honestly, the immigrant populations that have been under attack um, and have felt vulnerable, um, particularly so in recent times. Um, they're the ones that we're also really focused on and really ensuring that uh, they know about the importance of participating and they know that their participation is also safe. And, you know, and, and reading up on this, it's also clear there are certain, uh, you know, uh, I'll say subgroups or groups that uh, are routinely undercounted. And one that keeps coming up are, uh, are young children that they're not always counted as, as, as much as they should be. That's right. That's uh, right. And, oh, no, go ahead. Yeah, no, and I was going to say that, um, you know, oftentimes when folks think about the census, it's it's really counting adults and, and adults only, and um, they forget about their children. But, but I think an important thing to factor in is that uh, you think about a five-year-old that's in school right now, um, and the risk of not counting them would have implications for the next 10 years of their lives. So, Presumably, um, their, them being not counted um, is potentially less funding to the school that they may be attending for um, their teenage years. And as far as CRE, what, you know, well, actually, let me step back a bit. What are the role that the nonprofits are going to be playing, you know, moving into 2020? What are the, you know, what are they starting to work on right now? Uh, and what is CRE doing to help them? Sure. Well, I think it's first important for us to note that just last week, uh, Governor Cuomo announced a $60 million investment in the 2020 census, uh, including $20 million allocated specifically to community-based organizations to get out the count. And that was really the result of months of tireless advocacy from our partners um, in ensuring that there would be funding and resources made available um, to nonprofits to participate in this effort. Um, as you know, nonprofits are already working on shoestring budgets um, to make the most of their staff time um, and energy. And so what we've been doing at CRE is really helping organizations think creatively about how they might be able to integrate census education and outreach work in their existing programming, um, really maximizing um, the human capacity that they have, as well as the networks um, that they already have within the community. Um, I think a big part of uh, this effort is really relying on those that are trusted uh, messengers within um, these neighborhoods. Um, and so we believe that the city's partnership with community-based organizations is critical in ensuring that we get a fair and accurate count. And what is CRE going to be doing? I understand you're going to be holding some workshops. Yes. So we are conducting a series of educational workshops and capacity building trainings, uh, really providing uh, community-based organizations with tools, resources, um, about how they might be able to integrate this in their programming. Um, we will be conducting these trainings throughout the next couple of months. Um, we have one coming up next Wednesday, December 4th as well as another one coming up in December 16th. Um, these will be kind of initial Census 101 trainings for those that are not as familiar with um, kind of the implications of uh, the participation in the census, as well as kind of nuts and bolts about how to actually uh, do census work uh, for groups that may traditionally not have been involved or may not have been as engaged in the last several months. And uh, from what I understand, also, CRE is going to be doing some type of a resource guide for nonprofits? 
That's right. Um, and so there's quite a lot of information out there um, already about the census. And so for some, it might be difficult to navigate and figure out uh, which are kind of credible sources of information. And so we are working with other community-based organizations um, to put together a resource guide that other nonprofits can look to. Um, we can kind of see it as a, a kind of a go-to um, resource where folks can find statistics and important information that they might be able to um, translate into their own kind of communities, as well as um, kind of tools that they might be able to um, use for outreach and education uh, for their constituents. So, uh, it, you know, from what I gather, it the census starts, the uh, online and phone responses starts in March of 2020. You know, uh, and at some point people start knocking on, knocking on doors. Uh, can you talk a little about the type of guidance that is is going to be given to uh, to nonprofits on how to approach people and ensure them that this is important that you participate in this? Because I really do feel that in this country there is a lot of fear, uh, particularly given the federal administration's uh, actions on a number of fronts regarding immigration. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and so you're correct. The um the outreach is really happening between now until March, March, and folks will be a bit able to uh, go online for the first time to complete the census survey. We want to encourage as many folks to do that as possible. Um, there will be kind of online language uh, translations uh, that folks will be able to access as well as by phone. So for those that may not have broadband access, there's still an option to call in um, and actually speak to somebody that um, is able to speak their language. And so we know for New York City, there is a wide range of languages that are spoken here. And so the city um, really has kind of taken that into account this time around. Um, we want to encourage as many people to self-respond as possible. Uh, we recognize that the fear of having a federal employee, Census Bureau employee come to your door is not something that anyone wants necessarily. And so, you know, to avoid that, we encourage folks to just go online and complete the survey as soon as possible. And so that's the guidance that we're going to be encouraging our uh, partners um, to share in their communities is to encourage as many people as possible to go out and, and complete the survey online, on the phone, on their own. And, and should they be concerned about security uh, or um, even just having access to a computer, I know that um, New York Public Libraries are being outfitted with um, hardware as well as uh, staffing um, to actually help folks complete their surveys. And so I um, really want to encourage uh, folks to um, do that um, and, and avoid having to have a, uh, a federal employee come and knock on the door um, to, to get their count then. Uh, George Shea, how can people learn more about Community Resource Exchange and also find out more information about these upcoming workshops? Sure. So we want to encourage folks to check out our website. It's crenyc.org. We have more information on a specific page with backslash census 2020. Um, you'll see that uh, we will be updating our workshop schedules there, as well as the list of online resources that people can access um, throughout the next coming months. Um, we're also on Twitter, so you can see us on CREMYC. 
George Shea, Senior Consultant at Community Resource Exchange. I'd like to thank you for taking some time away from your Thanksgiving break to give a call into WBAI today. Sure. Thanks so much, Steph. So you are listening to an expanded edition of Driving Forces today from uh, 5 till 8 o'clock. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, here on WBAI 99.5 FM. This hour, I've been focusing a little on uh, organizations and nonprofits that are doing good, uh, finding ways to uh, support others because we are in that giving season now. Usually, if you are a listener of this show, we do a lot on politics and policy. And, you know, I, I, I will touch on that with different guests because coming up at the uh, Top of the next hour will be our Manhattan Borough President, Gail Brewer. I thought she would be very good to be able to talk today simply because during her career she's focused a lot on quality of life issues and poverty issues and hunger issues and homelessness. Uh, you know, she's my uh, former local elected when I lived in Manhattan, uh, and I've always enjoyed uh, talking with her. In fact, the last place I did see her at was the 40th anniversary event of Community Resource Exchange uh, a few weeks ago uh, when she had dropped by that event. So uh, if you are tuning in here to Driving Forces today, what I've been doing through uh, the show is playing some songs by Roberta Pickett because she's going to be performing over at Flushing Town Hall on December 6th. And the reason I'm also doing this is, you know, I want to lighten things up a bit, but also this is just such a beautiful CD uh, that Roberta has one for Marion celebrating the life of Marion McPartland. Uh, as many of you probably know, if you're longtime listeners, uh, Marion started her radio career here at WBAI. And this is just such a beautiful CD. Uh, but you'll be able to hear this music uh, by Roberta next Friday at Flushing Town Hall if you would like a pair of tickets. Uh, to see the show, you just need to, if you could pledge in support of BAI, we'll give you those tickets. I've secured five pairs. I'm sure Flushing Town Hall would be gracious enough if I asked for a few more. Uh, and it would really be great if you could become what is known as a BAI buddy. I'm one of those because uh, I give a recurring donation every month, uh, five, ten, twenty dollars, you know, whatever you can afford on this day of giving and the start of the giving season, it would be wonderful if you could become a BAI buddy to show recurring support for the station. And uh, the pledge line number is 516-620-3602. You could also go online to give to, that is the number two, WBAI.org. Or you could just text the letters WBAI to the number 41444. Again, that's you uh, by text WBAI to the number 41444. So as I took the train this morning downtown, uh, I, I noticed there were, I mean, this is at 5 a.m. in the morning. I was going to volunteer at God's Love to help in the kitchen. And there were quite a number of people sleeping on the train. This is early in the morning, but I'm sure you've noticed that in recent years, homelessness in New York City has reached the highest level since the Great Depression of the 1930s. According to the Coalition for the Homeless, uh, in September of this year, there were more than 62,000 people who are considered homeless, including close to 15,000 homeless families and, disturbingly, tw more than 22,000 homeless children sleeping each night 
in the New York City municipal shelter system. Families make up more than two-thirds of the homeless shelter population. Well, next week, there's a global event called the World's Big Sleepout that is aiming to address the issue of homelessness, not just here, but across the globe. So on the line now, if I'm correct, from Scotland, is the founder of the World's Big Sleepout, Josh Littlejohn. Welcome to WBAI. Josh, Josh, you there? Okay, he was there. Hopefully he can call back in. We'll have him hopefully back in in just a moment. Uh, but uh, as we're waiting for Josh, uh, hopefully he can call back in in a moment. Uh, I just wanted to uh, remind our listeners that you are listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI. Uh, we are about halfway through our three-hour special. So we've got Josh back on the line. Josh Littlejohn, welcome to WBAI. Hello, thanks for having me. So uh, I gave a little, very brief description of the world's big sleepout. Can you tell our listeners Great. a little about its origins and what, what's going to take place next week? Yeah, um, so basically, like, I'm on the line here from Edinburgh in Scotland. Um, so my background is I co-founded a small charity here in Scotland working with homeless people. And over the years, we've really increased our work through these big mass participation events where we've encouraged members of the public to come and sleep out on a cold December winter's night to raise awareness and money for the homelessness issue. And so over the years in Scotland, we have managed to raise millions of dollars, probably over over $10 million over the years um, for this issue. And then this year, it, as you say, it's happening in just over a week on Saturday, the 7th of December, um, we've decided to try and take this campaign and stage on a one-off basis a big global event. Um, so on Saturday, the 7th of December, um, there's going to be big mass participation, sleep-out events for people to raise awareness, but most importantly, raise money to try and help homeless people all over the world. And in New York, quite amazingly, the event's happening in Times Square uh, on Saturday, the 7th of December where we're going to have room for just over a 1,000 people to come and sleep out on the night. And who takes part in this? How many people would you uh, expect to take part in uh, Times Square? So in Times Square, like, the city has given us all four plazas, and so sort of from the NASDAQ building all the way to Father Duffy Square is kind of going to be closed down for people to come and take part in this one-off uh, event. So we're encouraging you know, all your listeners really to come and join us on the night. You can sign up at BigSleepOut.com, and when you sign up, you'll be given an online fundraising page, and you'll raise money. That money then goes to benefit lots of local charities in New York actually tackling the issue, um, as well as other charities, including UNICEF, who are tackling homelessness internationally. And so, hopefully, we're going to raise lots of money to tackle homelessness locally and throughout the world. Um, but yeah, over about a thousand people are going to ultimately be in Times Square next Saturday uh, in their sleeping bags. Before they sleep out, there's a bit of a show element. Um, there's a, some musicians performing. We've actually managed to get the actor Will Smith. He's going to be coming live to Times Square to, to do what's called tell a bedtime story um, to all the participants before they sleep out. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit of a show, but ultimately about 10 p.m. everyone will be getting to their sleeping bags and over a 1,000 people will be sleeping out in Times Square to to raise money and really hopefully you know raise a sense of political urgency around this issue as well why did this become such an important issue to you well it's a bit of a um 
strange story, really. It kind of ha- happened a bit by accident to me. Um, about seven years ago, I co-founded a, a little um, sandwich shop, actually. It was a little cafe kind of selling sandwiches and coffees in the centre of Edinburgh in Scotland. And we met this young man. Um, just we'd been open, The shop had been open about two weeks. We met this young man who was 21 years old. He was homeless. Um, and he came into the shop this day and he plucked up the courage and he asked us if he could have a job. And we kind of thought, why not? It seemed like quite a nice thing to do. So we gave him a job in our kitchen um, and he worked really hard and the, we saw the job was quite transformative for him. So we thought, you know, why not let's try that again? And almost by accident, really, we kept offering jobs to people that were in this situation of homelessness. And then we started to encourage our customers in the cafe to pay it forward and buy an extra coffee or an extra sandwich for homeless people to come and get something for free later and so we started to feed people every day in this cafe so that was about seven years ago we kind of got involved in this you know as I say pretty much by accident and then yeah I I could have never dreamt seven years ago when that young man came and asked us for a job I'd be talking to you now in New York just a week away from doing a big event in Times Square trying to raise money and awareness about this issue so so, and, and in terms of a, a crazy journey, and in terms of raising money and awareness, the, the individuals who mm-hmm. the thousand people who take part in this, say in Times Square, you know, it's not just for them about raising money, but it, I, I would gather it's about them also understanding what the conditions are like uh, for folks who are sleeping on the streets or trying to find a place to sleep. Of course, like that's it. Definitely creates a massive sense of um, a shift in perspective and an uh, increasing compassion for people. Absolutely. Like, I, we organise these kind of events in Scotland, and obviously, like, it's in no way a replication of actually being homeless. Like, a, a, you can imagine if you were actually homeless in New York and you were sleeping in a doorway or on the street. It's very different from this. Which this is in an event, you know. There's security. There's a bit of a concert. Will Smith's telling a bedtime story. So it's very different. However... It's going to be very cold, it's going to be very noisy, it's going to be very bright. And I imagine when people wake up and they go home to their own places the next day and they get showered and they get warm, then they're going to really understand that they couldn't really imagine doing it again the second night or the third night. And then your eyes really get opened to how traumatic this kind of situation can be and for people to be in. So, yes, it's about raising money. Yes, it's about raising awareness and in the media and the political spotlight on it, but hopefully for the people that take part, it's also going to be about you know shifting their sense of perspective as well. Uh, you know, and in terms of impacting policy, you know, here in New York City and New York State, the issue of homelessness has been a deep concern. I, I in introducing this uh, segment, I had talked about you know how many uh, people who are homeless are in sh- the shelter system and the families and the incredible n- uh, a number of homeless children who are out there. How do you like? What are some things that you hope the elected, the policymakers, take away from an event like this? You know, and what actions would you want them to take? Yeah, I mean, I think that my understanding, like I'm absolutely no expert, but my understanding of the situation of homelessness in New York is that it's it's worse now since the Great Depression. Um, so I think that's something for the politicians and the policymakers, but also for the for everybody in New York to really think that that's not something that we want to live with in in this day and age. We and we have it within our collective hands to change that. So I think, you know, there's various political solutions to the issue. 
obviously house building is a critical um, thing. You know, there, there needs to be like living in shelters is absolutely no solution for someone that's homeless. Uh, particularly, as you say, children and families. It's a very desperate situation that that's, um, we need to get people on such large numbers out of shelters into mainstream accommodation. So building housing is is massive. But also, what you know, I've been to New York several times to promote and try and organize this event. And, you know, you see street homelessness. I think there's about 5,000 people on the streets of New York as well. So, you know, there's all kinds of investments to be made in supporting people off that situation into uh, uh, their own house, but that needs to have support and people typically maybe have challenges, whether that's mental health or addictions or practical issues that they need support with. So um, I think fundamentally we need to make this a political priority. We need to shine the media spotlight and the political spotlight on it. And we know there are solutions out there to it. Um, and I'm sure New York is a compassionate enough place to, to start to make a dent in this issue. So we've just got about two minutes left, and I'm curious, you mentioned that these events, uh, as uh, as they're happening globally, they're supporting a number of uh, of different charities. Uh, here in New York or in the U.S., You know, where would that money go to that is raised? So in New York, we've found some amazing local charities that are going to be benefiting um, so they include Breaking Ground, um, who are a really important partner for us because they actually do the outreach for street sleepers in the Times Square area and in that kind of area of Manhattan. So um, people that would have to sleep in that area day in, day out, um, Breaking Ground are supporting. And we're also giving funds to an organization called the Alley Forney Centre, who support LGBTQ youth homelessness. So this is people that have been kicked out of their family homes, and um, typically because they've been gay or or whatever, um, and find themselves homeless in New York. Um, another one's called the Coalition for the Homeless, who do all kinds of campaigning and food provision and housing provision. And um, so we found three amazing local partners in New York, and then also internationally, as you say, and um, we're partnering with UNICEF USA, and um, who are supporting children that have been displaced children that are effectively homeless um, throughout the world um, and are living in refugee camps and that kind of thing. So we're aiming through this to support people locally in New York City, but also kids that have been uh, forced from their homes further afield as well. And Josh, how can people learn more uh, about the world's big sleepout? So the main thing is you can go to bigsleepout.com. You've only got a few days. I know it's Thanksgiving. I want to say happy Thanksgiving everybody in New York that's listening um, and the registrations are going to be closing early next week so you need to go on um, as soon as you can to bigsleepout.com and click on the Times Square event and sign up to sleep out. It's a one-off thing. It's never ever happening again, happening again as well as Times Square on the same night these sleep out events are happening in 52 cities all over the world so it's going to be a one-off unique global moment of compassion and fundraising and solidarity for people in that situation. So New York's a compassionate place and we'd love for everybody listening to come and join us in Times Square for this this moment. And I'm personally going to be in New York. My family's coming out there, my mum and my dad and my brother, we're all coming over to sleep out in Times Square. So I hope to see as many of you as possible joining us. Josh Littlejohn, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And for our listeners, he's uh, five hours ahead of us. So 
he's going to have to get some rest right now because it was uh, getting close to midnight uh, where he is in Scotland right now. Uh, we've just been talking here on WBAI during this hour with a number of organizations that are hoping to make a difference, that are supporting others. And uh, that's going to bring me to our final guest this hour, who's with the Bowery Mission. Uh, this, I don't know if you know anything about the Bowery Mission, but this is actually one of the places when I had worked with the city controller that we would visit often in the afternoon to help serve meals on Thanksgiving uh, when um, it was one of the stops that a number of electeds made. And in fact, uh, from looking uh, at Twitter today, uh, I want to thank my former uh, – uh, well, he wasn't my colleague. He got there later. But Errol Lewis had posted a photo from New York One of uh, former Mayor Bloomberg dropping by Bowery Mission earlier, saying this is not a day for politics, but it is something that the mayor, uh, former mayor, had uh, uh, done a number of years before. Uh, this organization, the Bowery Mission, has been around since the 1870s, and Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving week is one of its uh, busiest periods. So I'd like to welcome James Winans, Development Officer at the Bowery Mission, to BAI. Welcome. Thank you, Jeff. So talk a little about the Bowery Mission and what you do with your programs and services. Now, as you just mentioned, Jeff, we've been around since the 1870s, and we serve New Yorkers who are experiencing homelessness and hunger. And we're really looking to provide a restorative second chance for men and women who are experiencing homelessness and poverty in New York. Uh, we also work with kids. Uh, we provide a positive first chance for children uh, who, so that they don't ever need a place like the Bowery Mission when they grow up. And uh, today, you know, I m noted that I had seen that Errol Lewis had posted something uh, about Mayor Bloomberg visiting. Can you talk a little about that visit and what also has taken place today? Sure. Well, the Bowery Mission uh, Thanksgiving Day is our biggest day of the year. Uh, many New Yorkers have come out to help us this day, over 700 volunteers. And uh, it's just an outpouring of generosity, and we were pleased uh, first thing this morning at our first meal at 8 a.m. Uh, to have our, our former mayor, Michael Bloomberg, join us. Uh, he's been a longtime supporter of the organization and uh, often served on Thanksgiving. Uh, he was with us this morning to distribute some practical care kits that had some winter items and hygiene items to each of our guests who were there for breakfast. And, you know, I just talked a little about this uh, with our previous guest who is or the, organizing the world's big sleep out uh, here in the United States, or at least in New York, it's going to take place in Times Square. We talked about the, the numbers, the staggering numbers uh, of homeless individuals here in the city. What are the, the trends? What are the what have you been witnessing, you know, as far as the folks that you serve um, regarding homelessness in the city, and how have you had to adjust your services to meet these new needs? Sure, we're finding that we're serving more people who are actually holding down a job, you know, going to work every day, performing well on the job, but simply cannot afford housing, um, affordable housing. And so uh, we have a, a newer short-term residential program that helps people who Maybe they've maybe they've recently lost their job and they're they're going to quickly transition back into the workforce or the, or like I said they're holding down a job and we're able to work for work with them for a shorter period of time on their goals of regaining independent living. And how is the Bowery Mission addressing poverty? From what I had read on your website, you've got a four pronged strategy. We do have a four pronged strategy. So first of all, we are offering what we call compassionate care. And that's the food and the shelter and the showers and the clothing 
that are all offered free of charge, no questions asked to those who come to our front doors. Um, it's what we're maybe most well known for. Uh, it's, it's very visible, especially here on Thanksgiving Day. But really, we say at the Bowery Mission, every meal uh, is an invitation to more. That It all begins with a meal, but it doesn't stop there. And so our second strategy is our residential and community programs, where we're inviting our clients to make progress towards their goals, not our goals, but theirs, um, as they work towards maybe uh, gaining some life skills, going through some counseling, recovering from addiction, getting some job job readiness training, getting reconnected with their family. And so we'll walk with somebody in residence for a long time, as long as they're making progress towards those goals. And then once uh, they, they hit those goals, our third strategy is really to stay in touch with them through an alumni program. We have an alumni program, not unlike a school uh, that would have an alumni program where graduates can stay in touch with each other, stay in touch with our organization, get some help if they come on hard times, but also be around maybe as volunteers to encourage others who are coming through after them. And then finally, our fourth strategy has to do with children. We've been working with children almost as long as we've been working with adults. Uh, we, we really do want to provide that positive first chance for some children in New York City so that they don't grow up in poverty, don't grow up experiencing homelessness. So we provide uh, after-school programs in East Harlem and the South Bronx safe places for kids to go after school and get uh, some leadership mentoring, some enrichment activities in the arts and athletics, and be in a safe place. Uh, and then that, that year-long experience culminates at our summer camp in the Poconos, where kids who've never left the Bronx, who've never left East Harlem, who've never left Queens, are able to uh, just be out in, in, in the wilderness and, uh, and be a kid again. So I've I've worked with nonprofits. That's my full time job for a number of years now. And uh, what's been interesting is often talking to the nonprofit leaders about how their organizations have had to uh, adapt to new needs and all, but not just respond, but to look ahead to what they see. You know. Uh, bubbling up that are going to be new needs so they could prepare for them and be as proactive as possible. As we look uh, at the horizon in 2020, what are there any new initiatives? What are some of the things that the Bowery Mission is looking towards to address? I think we've come to realize that when you're homeless in New York, there's a lot of broken trust. You know, your family's tried to help you and maybe they've given up. You know, the government's tried to help you and maybe they haven't come through on their their commitments. Um, other organizations have promised help but haven't helped. And so what we're trying to do first and foremost is rebuild trust that, that someone would come to the Bowery Mission and find it as a place where they can say, actually, you do want to help me. Actually, I can trust you. I can build a relationship with this organization and its people. Um, and so to foster that trust, we are piloting what we're calling day centers, now, these are safe places to be during the day when people are not in shelter um, so that they can come in, um, be safe, um, participate in some classes and activities that might be a little bit outside of the box, um, some things that, that uh, are enriching activities, maybe some, some times of playing games or participating in a yoga class or something like that that um, uh, is not normally thought of as a social service. And, uh, and build trust with, with staff members. We have on staff called ambassadors. Ambassador's job is really to 
know somebody's name and their story and their goals and uh, and walk with them uh, towards accomplishing those goals. And having worked with a number of nonprofits and also witnessing this this morning when I was volunteering, uh, a lot of these organizations, including the Bowery Mission, relies on volunteers. Can you just talk a little about how people uh, – I've got about a minute or two left – how people can get involved if they would like to volunteer? Absolutely. We had, uh, like I said, over 700 volunteers today, but we are a 24-7 operation operating across nine different locations in New York City. Um, most of our volunteer slots are full through the end of the calendar year, but we've got lots of openings come January, February, March, April. So I encourage people to, to monitor the opportunities on our website, Bowery.org, B-O-W-E-R-Y.org, and find out how they – how um, how you can get involved. And you knew that was going to be my last question, so thank you, which is how people can learn more about your organization. James Winans, I want to thank you so much for joining me here on this Thanksgiving Day. I know it's really tough when everyone's working all day uh, to be able to serve others, and then you know you need to spend time with family and friends, so I do appreciate you taking some time uh, this evening to talk with me here on BAI. Jeff, we appreciate the opportunity, and happy Thanksgiving. Same to you. So as we close out this hour, I just want to uh, remind our listeners, this is an extended version of Driving Forces. We're on until 8 o'clock tonight. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, here on WBAI. And what I've been doing throughout the show and what we're going to close the hour out with in just a few moments is showcasing a few of the songs from Roberta Pickett from her CD, One for Marion, celebrating uh, Marion McPartland. Uh, and the reason we're also doing this is because – Thank you to Roberta and to Flushing Town Hall. Well, Roberta has a concert next Friday, December 6th at Flushing Town Hall, where she'll be playing a number of these songs. And she's got special guest, Karin Allison, who's going to be with her. Uh, and if you would like to be able to support BAIs, I hope you uh, will do. Uh, uh, you can get a pair of these tickets to see this concert next Friday, December 6th. So if you could take just a few moments and pledge, you can call our number at 516-620-3602. You can even go online. Uh, it's easy to do this. Uh, give to WBAI.org. Or you can text the letters WBAI to the number 41444. It's uh, incredibly important uh, if you've been a, a listener uh, to show your support. And it means a lot, not just to me, but to everyone here in the WBAI family. We're non-commercial. We're non-corporate. Uh, you know, that's why I've said throughout the show, you're not seeing or hearing ads uh, from Coca-Cola or from or from for-profit entities or any type of, you know, corporation. It's because we rely on you. And, you know, today's usually seen as the first uh, of the day of the giving season in the next few weeks. So if you could give to BAI, that would be fantastic. You just have to go online to give to, that's the number two, WBAI.org. And if you mention you're doing it in the name of Driving Forces and you would like a pair of those tickets to see uh, Roberta Pickett play uh, songs in her concert uh, celebrating Marion McPartland, uh, you know, just mention this uh, and we'll get you those tickets. Uh, and with that, we're going to close out this hour with another song uh, from this album. This is called Time and Time Again. <laughs> Thank mm-hmm. you. 
Welcome back to WBAI's extended Thanksgiving edition of Driving Forces. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and you were just listening to jazz artist Roberta Pickett. That was her song, Time and Time Again, from One for Marion, celebrating Marion McPartland. And for our longtime listeners, you know that she started her radio career at here at WBAI, had a weekly show here in the 1960s. And later in, in this fi- a final hour of our extended uh, show, we're going to talk to you about how you can get tickets to Roberta's concert uh, celebrating Marion McPartland at Flushing Town Hall. So uh, we're going to get right to our my next guest, uh, a good friend who I've enjoyed having on the show before, uh, and that is our Manhattan Borough President, Gail Brewer. Gail, welcome back to WBAI. Thank you, and happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. I thought it would be great to have you on because during your career, you have focused a lot on issue, on quality of life issues and on homelessness and poverty and on hunger-related issues. And, and one of my uh, former co-hosts, Joel Berg uh, from City Watch, has also uh, been a big fan and been uh, uh, very uh, – uh, praiseworthy of you and your work on on hunger issues so talk a little about you know what was on your agenda this week and how you've uh, how you even spent thanksgiving well you know hunger is always on my list but uh, thanksgiving was very special today i started out this morning at national action network with reverend al sharpton and he always invites a lot of elected and others to come to 145th street to serve and we do. The food is phenomenal. The place is jammed. But I think more importantly, you do get a sense of the huge numbers of people who are hungry and who are there to eat. And I think they also enjoy listening to him. And he obviously has a lot to say. So that was the first thing I did. Um, then I went to uh, Project Find, which is uh, on 73rd Street. And they have a senior center called Hamilton Senior Center. And again, you know, it's, it's, it's what I love about these events is you often see the same people year after year. It's not that they're hungry, but they're hungry for companionship in addition to food. And at uh, Hamilton Senior Center, there's obviously lots of good music, dancing, and then companionship, I would say. Goddard Riverside Community Center was next. It's one of the settlement houses. And there, each one is different, but there, there are a lot of people who are hungry. What's often interesting about Thanksgiving is that people can live in the same building and some are eating and some are volunteering. It sort of depends on how you look at yourself and how you're feeling about the world. But at Settlement House, they obviously work from cradle to grave in terms of their services, and you could see all of that in the room. So the numbers of volunteers at all of these is very, very impressive. And from there, I went to... um, a, a social adult daycare center where one of the local Democratic clubs sponsored by Councilmember Perkins, Sojourner Troop, uh, had another huge Thanksgiving Day dinner, uh, people from Harlem specifically. And then I went to uh, the First Sharon Baptist Church on East 116th Street where Eddie Gibbs, who's a district leader, has an annual Thanksgiving dinner. He's extremely generous to the community and has tons of volunteers who come from all over the city. And, you know, I think it's a combination on Thanksgiving of both people giving and at the same time all the people who are hungry. So, you know, Thanksgiving is a, just a moment in time, and now I'm uh, with my family uh, having dinner. I hope they're not too loud. <laughs> and, I, and I do appreciate 
I appreciate you taking I appreciate you taking some time away from what I'm is now your, your private time. So thank you. As I'm you delighted to. as you make a, your way across the city and you visit a number of these organizations, obviously, you know, you, you, you have a special insight into, you know, the the extent of the need here in the city to address these issues. How do you view the state of homelessness as you see it in the city right now? I think it's huge. The program that I think is most impressive is West Side Campaign Against Hunger. Um, it's on 86th Street. It's been around for a very long time. They gave out 22,000 turkeys this year, this Thanksgiving year. That's a lot of turkeys and a lot of need, and it's more than in the past. So I would say homelessness is obviously at a very high compared to what the mayor or Steve Banks, the commissioner, might say. You see it. Um, obviously, in the streets, in the subways, um, and then of course there are many people whom you don't see who are either in hotels or in hopefully well-run shelters, families, and individuals. Um, over the years, I understand it. One of the challenges that we all face is the number of children. Um, 144,000, I believe, in 2019, at one point or another, were homeless. A lot of children. I would say the the need for Food, as the great Joel Berg says, food insecurity is more than ever. And you see some of it at Thanksgiving, but you just see a lot of it uh, all year long. And you see it also because of two other uh, Trump-related issues. One is people afraid to sign up for food stamps for reasons that they could end up not getting a green card ever or because they're just afraid of having their name on any list. And so they end up at these uh, food pantries and place where you could get free food. Uh, so that drives the numbers up. And then the second, you know, is just the need for food because you are paying so much for rent, transportation, and everything else that you have to pay for. So those two are really driving the need for food up. Do you think the city is doing enough? And if not, what more should the city be doing? Well, I never think the city is doing enough. I mean, the real issue is affordable housing, because if your housing is affordable, then you can still pay for food. Food is expensive. Food is very expensive. Um, so you do need to have something to pay for. I don't know that we can drive the cost of food down. We can certainly find ways, in my opinion, of driving the cost of housing down by having more subsidies and just more lower cost housing. If you're like just on Social Security, like many of our seniors, I don't know where you could go except for NYCHA because the uh, apartments are still more expensive than what you can afford on a Social Security income, for instance. So I would say that, you know, and that includes a lot of people who are homeless who are just getting Social Security or just getting some kind of subsidy, not working, not getting a pension. So I would say that the, the cost of housing is what is driving the high cost of housing is what's driving so many people to be food insecure. Are there other cities uh, or jurisdictions that you look to that are addressing these issues in a way that New York City could replicate or any specific programs that you think should be replicated here? It's a very good question, Jeff. I mean, I just came back from the National League of Cities. They had their annual conference in Texas. And I would say that it was interesting to me that the keynote was, uh, how city populations are getting older and how hard it is for seniors in general to be able to afford the housing and the food. I thought that was fascinating because 
it's the first time I've heard that as a as a primary topic. Um, every single city <clears throat> that we, you know, was at this uh, 4,000 person conference was uh, focused on the lack of affordable housing and the homeless issue. So I don't know that anybody has conquered it. You know, um, there was an article in the paper recently that some of the big, some of the big, some of the big, um, hold on one second. Some of the big um, corporations that do technology are in their particular cities are allocating funding toward housing. But I think in terms of the food, since there's such a relationship between the two, it's, you know, they're going to end up with a lot of food pantries and soup kitchens until we can figure out this housing problem. And, you know, we're talking about food, but one thing I noticed on your website was all it's beyond just food that's a need and shelter. Um, you launched uh, the fourth annual holiday diaper drive in partnership with the Girl Scouts of Greater New York and I believe another organization or two. Can you talk a little about why you wanted to focus on this? Yes. I mean, we spoke to all of the shelters and uh, individual programs that house and support low-income families and whether your child is in uh, child care, uh, as your infant or small child, or if you're in a shelter, uh, anybody who has a child knows that diapers are really expensive. And although you would think people would be collecting cans of food or collecting clothing, it turns out that diapers are seldom collected and seldom donated. So whether you you know bring it bring diapers to our offices on 125th Street or to One Center Street or uh, donate to Amazon to our offices. Believe it or not, diapers are a huge asset. So we work obviously um, to get them directly to those at some of the food pantries and some of the uh, soup kitchens and obviously to the homeless shelters because believe it or not, this is a huge need and uh, people are very generous. And as we look ahead to 2020, are you seeing specific trends? I was asking our last guest about this as well. Um, are you seeing specific trends that you feel are going to be need to be addressed, things that are bubbling up? Oh, yes. I mean, the issue in New York being so diverse and having a huge percentage of undocumented and foreign-born in New York City, the issue is from PTA, kids are going to school who are undocumented, but the parents are not going to any of the PTA meetings. We all know that parent input is really, really important for a child's education. Number two, parents and individuals who are not documented are not going to get good health care. They're not signing up for any kind of insurance, and they're not going to the hospitals, and they're not going to any kind of a primary care. And, of course, we all know primary care is where you prevent any kind of spread or any kind of disease in the, anybody for the future. So it's terrible that the hospitals, particularly the public hospitals, are not seeing these patients. And, of course, the, you know, that forces people underground with all the other challenges that that brings. So I would say number one is the issue for 2020 of how do we deal with undocumented. And, of course, I'm very biased. I would like to see a, another person in the White House very, very definitely. Well. But until then, we're stuck with so many of these issues. And, of course, people are afraid to sign up for food stamps, as I said earlier. That means that they're hungry, but more importantly, they're also going to the food pantries and the soup kitchen. 
So uh, shifting to politics, since you'd like to see another person in the White House, is that person Mike Bloomberg? Well, I obviously know him. I was in the city council for 12 years while he was mayor. Um, and I, you know, got along with him, particularly on his public health issue, no smoking. I supported him on no sugary drinks, even though it did not pass. And I certainly think he did a good job on big issues like transportation and figuring out how to uh, use and build on our streets in a more um, supportive fashion. I do support the bike lanes, despite others not supporting them. Um, but I don't know how um, somebody like him um, wins the hearts and minds of Americans. I, I just don't know. But I think I join with many other New Yorkers in saying we just want Donald Trump out. So either it's, if it's Mike Bloomberg or if it's Elizabeth Warren or if it's you know Cory Booker or the list that is before us, I think any of us, I know I will work with whomever the Democratic nominee is to get him out, get Trump out. And, you know, I've been asking guests this over the last week as well, that when Bloomberg was uh, what dipping his toe in the water before he officially announced, uh, he spoke at a prominent church here in Brooklyn, I believe, and had apologized for his previous stance on stop and frisk. What was your reaction to that? I thought it was good that he apologized. I do know that he it was a terrible policy. I remember... One of my favorite marches that I think contributed to the end of Stop and Frisk was a silent march from Harlem downtown. And I loved it because thousands and thousands of us marched and didn't say a word, basically stating, you know, we are very upset with this policy and our silence is saying to you loud and clear, we hate it and we're locking up lots of young men and women of color. Um, he apologized. He, he, I think there are other things that he obviously made a mistake on. He has always been good on public health. He's always been good on some of the topics that I mentioned. But he has never understood that not everybody can pull themselves up with their own bootstraps. Everybody needs a lot of help. And I think he's never quite understood the extent to which so many of us need help. And he, that's not something that he has understood, and I don't think he understands of the depth that criminal justice can hurt many individuals, which it has, and it still continues despite all the efforts that Mayor de Blasio, and he has put effort into this, and certainly um, Police Commissioner O'Neill, and I'm sure the next commissioner will also, but even the training that goes on still needs to be more intense in order to support our young people. So at the start of the show, I and mean, we've got just about a minute or two left, at the start of the show, I interviewed Diane Morales, uh, one of two women who've announced that they're going to be running uh, to succeed Mayor Bloomberg. Uh, you have not talked about publicly what the next step Mayor is Bloomberg for you. Mayor de Blasio. Oh, de Blasio, de Blasio. excuse me, excuse Mayor me, de Blasio. <laughs> de Blasio. You have not discussed your future plans. Uh, care to make any announcement? What you know? What your term limited as well? What happens next for Gail Brewer? Well, I have two more years. Gail Brewer has two more years, just like all the others in the uh, city system. And I will only say that I love my borough of Manhattan. So I'm not a five-borough person. I'm a Manhattan person. But we'll see what happens. So but I appreciate, I appreciate the question. So today you're declaring that you're not running for mayor. I have always said I, I'm not running for mayor, <laughs> but I wish everyone luck. And, uh, of course, uh, how can people learn more about you and your initiatives? 
Well, certainly the Manhattan Borough President's website, or I'm G Brewer at ManhattanBP.nyc.gov. That's my email. I answer it. And the phone number in the office is 212-669-8300. And we also have an office in Harlem. We're the first to have a storefront as opposed to being up in a tall office building. And that's at 431 West 125th Street between Amsterdam and Morningside. And our office near City Hall is at One Center in the David Dinkins Building on the 19th floor. And we're very accessible. And before I forget, those uh, the addresses you just gave, those are the two addresses if people who are listening do want to donate diapers. Correct. Great. Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer, thank you for taking time away from your family. Uh, and I apologize to them on, on your behalf, on my behalf, whatever. Uh, thank you for taking some time on Thanksgiving uh, to be able to talk with me today. Thank you very much, Jeff Simmons. And Driving Forces is wonderful. And my family's doing just fine. And I'm sorry they were so noisy. They are very noisy. <laughs> we did not hear them at all. Do not worry. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. So um, if you're new to the show, uh, I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I've been with uh, WBAI for over a year now. Uh, and if uh, uh, you don't know much about me, I, before becoming a PR communications person with nonprofits, I used to work in government. Before that, I was a journalist for 17 years. And I had wanted to be a reporter uh, since I was in grade school. As early as I could remember, I looked at them in awe. I remember creating newspapers in my house, uh, you know, on, on sheets of paper, you know, when I would just handwrite them or then type them up. And then I was on my high school and college newspapers. And what I didn't learn in English classes or even journalism classes, I learned through these experiences, just doing it on my own. Uh, I became a news clerk at uh, North Jersey's largest newspaper, uh, uh, the Bergen Record. For those of you uh, in northern New Jersey, you know that paper. It's changed considerably over the years. And then I moved across the Hudson and worked at the New York Post, Daily News, and then New York One News. So I respect the work of journalists deeply. And and these these days, their jobs are incredibly tough. So I'm always impressed when I come across efforts that inspire a love of journalism at a young age and open young minds and hearts to hopefully launch careers. So when I heard about this next initiative called Students Disrupting, I knew I had to have Dennis Mahalski on the show. I don't want to give away much because I want to let Dennis tell you about it. So I'd like to welcome you, Dennis, to WBAI. Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, uh, tell us first, what is su- Students Disrupting? Because I didn't want to talk about it. I want to let you ta- tell our listeners what this uh, this organization does. Yeah, so the bottom line uh, with Students Disrupting is to bring student newspapers, student-run newspapers, uh, to every single New York City public school. Uh, because right now, uh, the sad fact is that only 200 out of the 1,800 New York City public schools have a student-run newspaper. Uh, so we are uh, fighting and advocating uh, to ensure that every school has a student-run newspaper. What's the re- what's the reason? I mean, that's so small. 200 out of 1,800. What's the reason? Is it a funding issue? Is it awareness? Is it lack of interest? I think it's a combination of. A lot of that. So I think that it's uh, I think that it's funding uh, is definitely one that schools um, sometimes think that a student newspaper is going to be an additional uh, funding issue when it comes to printing the newspapers uh, and all the process that comes with 
creating a newspaper. Uh, I think that additionally the uh, increase in high-stakes testing uh, that has overwhelmed our New York City public schools, uh, there's a lot more focus on you know, teaching to the test as opposed to teaching to, you know, what skills they can use once they are out of the school system. Uh, and then I think there is also a little bit of a fear of students uh, leading something without much administrative control uh, and, you know, possibly getting the word out that there could be something going on that um, they, they, they don't want to get out. Now, yourself, growing up, what was your experience with student journalism, and how did it shape your career? So when I when I was in high school, it, um, the newspaper that was at my high school uh, was massively influential, not only for the school community, but for the community as a whole. So um, we, it was The Lancer was the name of it, and it was just really brought the community together. So, you know, parents were reading it. Everyone in the community was reading it. Uh, there were always stories that had to do with uh, issues that were going on within the school, uh, issues going with going on with in the community. Uh, there were advertisements always. Uh, so it was a, had a big impact, and I saw the positive impact that it had. So um, I wasn't directly involved with the um, journalism program at my school, um, I was involved in the student council, but I was able to see the relationship that we had with the uh, student newspaper uh, and being able to make our voices heard. So uh, just from that, I was able to see the positive impact that a, a journalism program has on a school. And you haven't always been a teacher, correct? What led you to be uh, to start a teaching career? Yeah, so I was actually, um, I know you had mentioned you had a, a PR career. I was actually in, right when I uh graduated from Case University in New York City, I got into public relations. Um, so I had, um, I have uh, experience in media uh, and I, you know, was in public relations for a few years. I did internships um, and then I decided uh, I would have to say that my mom knew it best uh, when I was very little. She always said, you should be a teacher, you should be a teacher, but we always, you know, want to do our own thing. But uh, mother knows best. So she <laughs> told me, um, so now I, um, I then decided, uh, in 2016 that I would, uh, apply to the New York City Teaching Fellowship. Uh, and it was an incredible experience that then brought me to, uh, the teaching career that I have now. And you're at, uh, City College Academy of the Arts in the Bronx? Yes. Uh, uh, no, it's not in the Bronx. It's in uh, it's in Inwood. Ah, so in Inwood, very, very top of Manhattan. Yeah, I, I should know this, having lived in Inwood for about a year, quite some time ago. Uh, oh, okay. So, so what you know was there a moment that prompted you and I, uh, from what I read, your colleague Don Don Hunter to to start the school newspaper, the Claw Weekly. Like, what was that moment? You said we need to do this. Yeah. So I, um, with any of my units. Uh, in my classes, uh, I teach English language arts. I also teach speech and debate. Uh, one of my main things is to always kind of do uh, non-traditional uh, units. So there was one day that I really just noticed that a lot of kids didn't know what was going on. They did not know what was going on in the media. They didn't know what, what was going on in national, state, and local uh, politics. So I really wanted to bring it to them, but in a way that it wouldn't just be, 
you know, me teaching them about what's going on. So that's when her and I uh, met together and we kind of just decided, you know what, let's just do a newspaper, you know, let's just make it a one unit uh, 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 learning session of, you know, let's create a newspaper by the end of it. And then uh, at the end of it, it was highly successful. And that's when even my principal uh, came to both of us and she said, uh, this is going to be something that you're going to do through the end of the year. You know, and the students who you've gotten interested in this, you know, what do you tell them about what it means, you know, to produce good journalism, what it requires, and you know, what do you hope they achieve? So one of the first things is that I I always show them the um, the journalist code of ethics, uh, and I always uh, even I learned it from my speech and debate classes uh, where. It's not just something where they're angry about something, so they're just going to talk about what they're angry about and give a one-sided argument. I always tell them that, you know, before, you know, they can get as angry as they want about something, but let's look into the reason why that came to be. So I always ensure that they do not go wild with, uh, you know, their ideas of, you know, if they're like, oh, there's too much homework. (laughs) <laughs> you know, let's talk about that. Let's figure out, you know, what it is, you know, why is there so much homework or why is there so, you know, why are certain policies in place? And that's actually when I, you know, when I go to them for ideas, it really isn't uh, about homework or it's not about, you know, more free time. It's usually about uh, things that I never even knew that were going on in the school. They, they're they curious and they want to know what's going on. So my main thing is to tell them, you know, if you're, if that's what you're interested in, you know, let's find out what's going on. And it actually gives them a much better understanding of not only the school that they're in, but the community that they're in and the state of, you know, of, of everything that a lot of us are going through of being able to figure out, you know, why things happen and being able to evaluate it and then provide a, you know, factual uh, article that is uh, providing you know, why something is the way it is and, you know, interviewing people from all sides. And uh, it really has given them an opportunity to not only question authority, but being able to understand, you know, why things are the way they are. And, you know, you think about the climate that we're in today where we have a president who is consistently is attacking a number of journalists. How do they view journalism today? And do they worry about even more broadly, not even just about attacks on journalists, but do they worry about even careers given the state of local journalism? There was just a piece, I think, in the New York Times a few days ago, you know, and I've read similar pieces about the death of many local newspapers. Do they, you know, are those some of the considerations? Are they worried about, you know, they love something, but they worry about whether they could, you know, are they even thinking that far out that they could make a living in this? Yeah, and I think that that's one of the most important points of us making sure that there's a growth in student journalism uh, because I think that uh, a lot of the times in what we have in our public school systems, there's always just this, uh, you know, linear, linear direction of where they're supposed to go and, you know, go to college and then, you know, get a job that maybe is not something that they really studied when they were in college. And they, so within the school and within our studies of journalism, I think that it um, 
really opens their eyes to the possibilities of what else is out there and being able to give them a little more direction. So part of our curriculum is to provide speakers to come in to talk about their experience within media. So even our first uh, speaker that we had was actually who you just had on the show was uh, Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer, and she spoke to my students about her experience and, you know, how important the media is. Uh, And then we've had, you know, journalism, um, journalists, and we've had actors, come in uh and the one thing that i always you know really make clear to them and make clear to anybody when i talk about our initiative is that you know when anybody says that journalists or people in the media are quote the enemy of the people um the student press law center actually you know has a fact that 20 percent of the state news corps is actually young people who are in high school in college so if you're going to call, you know, the enemy of the people, uh, that means that you're saying that young people are part of the enemy of the people. So it's important for us to grow uh, the amount of young people in journalism and get them, you know, very actively involved in, you know, going to their school boards and finding out what's going on there and letting uh, their peers know. So for me, it's it's very important for us to spread this and to make sure that, uh, you know, we, we hold the right people accountable. And, uh, given what you just said, I mean, I I was going to ask how you came up with the name. So given what you said, it seems to easily segue into that. Talk about very briefly, uh, students disrupting why you chose that name. Yeah. So for, um, a lot of the, the, uh, in teaching and education, you always hear disrupting. And even if you Google it, students disrupting, uh, our name does not come up. It's actually, you know, these scholarly reports about how to, you know, stop students from disrupting the classroom and, and all of that. So my thing was from when I started teaching four years ago was that to look at the students who are disrupting the classroom and to harness their energy for positive reasons as opposed to disciplining them and telling them, you know, they have to continue doing as, I'm instructing them to do, but really see what it is that they want. And when you really harness that energy of them, quote, disrupting in a negative way, uh, they produce things that, uh, you know, I've seen and my co-teacher, Don Hunter, who's been in the education system for a very long time, uh, you know, never seen before. And so for me, it's, you know, saying students disrupting, is a positive because just like any other industry, when you see in banking or technology, when you hear somebody disrupting the industry, it's a positive thing. So for me, it's positive when students or teachers are disrupting the education system and, uh, you know, making a change uh, in the direction that we're going. And final question, how can people learn more about students disrupting? Yeah, so you can go to uh, studentsdisrupting.org. Uh, that's our website, and it has all the information on there. Uh, and anybody can email me uh, at Dennis, D-E-N-N-I-S, at DennisDisrupting.com. And then they can also follow us on uh, our social media, uh, which is all uh, Students Disrupting. Dennis Mahalski, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI Today.
Thank you so much, and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. So you've been listening to WBAI's Driving Forces. In just a moment, we're going to play another song by Roberta Pickett. Uh, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Just want to remind you, if you are listening and you're going to listen to the song in a moment and you enjoy the song and you want to hear it live, uh, you can pledge to WBAI because we've got five pairs of tickets to Roberta Pickett's concert at Flushing Town Hall next Friday, December 6th. Uh, when you pledge, uh, give the name of Driving Forces, say you want these tickets. The pledge line is 516-620-3602. Or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. So now I'd like to introduce you to the next song called Kaleidoscope.
And you were just listening to a kaleidoscope by Roberta Pickett. This is from her CD, One for Marion, celebrating Marion McPartland. Uh, I've been talking about this through the show. I'm Jeff Simmons, your host of Driving Forces on this extended three-hour special Thanksgiving uh, show tonight. And Roberta and Flushing Town Hall have given us five pairs of tickets to her show next Friday night. Uh, at the venue. Uh, it is a concert celebrating Marion McPartland, the legendary jazz artist and NPR host who also had a radio career here, a weekly show uh, on WBAI back in the 1960s. Uh, I want to thank Roberta and Flushing Town Hall uh, for uh, providing us with these pairs of tickets, which you can get as a listener if you're enjoying this music and you want to enjoy it more and see it live uh, next Friday night, December 6th. You just have to pledge in support of BAI. You can become a BAI buddy like I am and give a recurring donation of five, ten. $20 a month. It's easy to set this up. It took me a minute or two uh, to just enter my credit card information when I had uh, gone online to give to WBAI.org. If you don't even feel like going online, you could easily call up as well uh, at our pledge line at 516-620-3602. Or you can even text the letters WBAI to the number 41. 41- Four four four, and it's incredibly important. Uh, the reason that we're doing this aggressive fundraising now is because, if you recall, back on October seventh, we were suddenly shut out of our local programming. It was off for a month, and why was that also important to us? Not just because we weren't able to bring this to you to the listeners, but it was only days into our fundraising, our fall fundraising, where we were doing well. So for one month. We lost all of that financial support. And we don't take corporate donations. We're non-corporate. We're commercial-free. And we needed that revenue. And that's why we're doing this fundraising uh, now uh, to be able to make up that money. So if you get a chance and, uh, and you would like to get this gift of a pair of tickets to see Roberta Pickett next week, please give a call to 516-620-3602. So when we were off air, there were a number of people who were supportive of us, who would not stop championing how we needed to be back on the air, our local programming. And one of those had me on his show on AM 970, The Answer. Frank Morano was wonderful in talking about, and this, and he'll talk a little about his show in a moment, uh, but he was wonderful in talking about the value of having a progressive station uh, like uh, WBAI on the air. And I thought he was so generous to have me at his show to talk about WBAI. And also Arthur Schwartz also called in to give uh, an update on the legal case that was Arthur pursued this in court to get us back on air or local programming uh, that I wanted Frank to be able to call in on this Thanksgiving because this is our way of also giving back to Frank. So Frank, welcome to the show. Well, uh, Jeff, first of all, thank you for that very warm introduction. Uh, it is so great to hear not only you back on the air, uh, but all of uh, WBAI. I've been listening. It sounds as, uh, as great as ever. Uh, and uh, your shows in particular are uh, a real uh, public service. You know, I've known you for uh, about, about a decade. And through many of the hats that you've worn, but there are very few people that understand uh, city and state uh, politics and civic affairs as well as uh, you do. So to have that voice not on the air would really be a detriment uh, to the public. So I hope people will keep that in mind uh, as uh, they choose how to spend their money during this fundraising drive. And what I thought was so impressive was you eloquently had talked about from the outset of this about the value of having a diversity of 
uh, of radio stations, uh, you know, in our area and and in our community. Why was that important to you? Well, look, Jeff. I mean, first of all, if you think about it. It makes absolutely no sense to think that New York is one of the most uh, progressive, non-traditional places in the whole world, and yet the only all talk stations you can hear are all conservative political stations basically towing the status quo. You know, again, nothing at all against the station that I work for. I'm privileged that they uh, give me a voice uh, every you know, six days a week. But, um, I, I, look, I, in order for people to have informed views about anything, ideally, at least what I like try and do, is hear for all sides, all perspectives. How can you really understand what's going on if you're just listening to views in this echo chamber uh, telling you what you want to hear? I mean, I want to hear alternative views. And the thing that makes WBAI so great is there's great informative shows like yours, there's great opinion shows uh, like what John McDonough does, but there's so much other great non-political programming. There's great music programming. I, I, I'm at my mother-in-law's for uh, Thanksgiving now, and happy Thanksgiving, by the way, and I was listening to WBAI play some great music that I'd never been exposed to and wouldn't have been but for WBAI. This is actually, I, I talk about this a lot, why I enjoy getting to the station early on Sundays before uh, my other show to listen to several hours of Con Sabor Latino. Uh, because it's just so beautiful. Um, you know, I, again, I really want to thank you. I want to ask you about another topic or two, but uh, I want to thank you so much for your support for WBAI, uh, you know, and for encouraging listeners to, to continue to show their support and for also educating your listeners about the value of WBAI. It was very important to us. Well, I, first of all, there's no need to thank me. I thank you for being willing to uh, come into uh, come into my radio station at five o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. Uh, there's not a lot of folks that would do that, uh, so I think it says a lot about your commitment to uh, informing the public and promoting uh, WBAI. So uh, no need to thank me at all. I'm just glad you're back. Don't leave. That's the best thank you can give me. <laughs> thank you. So I do want to also point out, since we have you, you had a great piece, uh, an opinion piece in the Gotham Gazette. Uh, by the way, I should mention with the Gotham Gazette, one of our other hosts here, Ben Max, uh, works on Gotham Gazette. So uh, that's another great affiliation we have. But uh, you had a great piece on uh, uh, that the uh, there needs to be a a fix for New York elections. I'm just going to read one line in here, and then I would like you to talk about your views on this. You basically said if you want voters to have more choices and minor parties to continue to function but not corrupt the system, the only real choice is nonpartisan elections for every office across the state. Talk a little about this and your views on this. Well, thanks, Jeff. Obviously, this came about as a result of this sham public financing commission that did very little on public financing, but whose primary accomplishment was to essentially kill off every minor party in the state except the conservative party. And, you know, I talk to a lot of New Yorkers of, of every political persuasion, including people that don't care about politics. And when I ask them what they think the biggest problems in the state or the city are, not one of them on the left or on the right says, you know, there are too many parties on the ballot. So the fact that this commission came up with this proposal, which is going to take effect, unless the legislature votes to override it within the next 30 days. The fact that they came up with this proposal, which is going to raise the bar for third parties to retain ballot access, is absolutely absurd. Now, I get a lot of the reason why people are mad at these New York third parties, because what do you have? You have situations like Ray Harding and the Liberal Party who went to prison, 
who kind of sell their line sometimes for direct money. We saw the money that Mike Bloomberg gave to the Independence Party. But more often than not, it's patronage, like Pataki did with the Conservative Party, Giuliani did with the Liberal Party, and, you know, it goes down the line. The Working Families Party certainly makes very good use of not just patronage, but getting uh, politicians to adopt their ideological agenda. So my point is, um, if we had nonpartisan elections, we could still have the minor parties, and they'd actually have a chance at getting candidates elected, just like Jesse Ventura in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, when he ran for mayor there, or uh, Dennis Kucinich in Cleveland, Ohio, or um, Oscar Goodman in Las Vegas, Nevada. None of those people were endorsed by the Democratic or Republican parties, and they were all able to get elected because those places had nonpartisan elections, and they didn't have the stigma of running as a third-party candidate. So what if Instead of there being a Democratic line on a ballot, a Republican line, a conservative line, a working families line, anybody that wanted to run for any office in the state, be it state assembly or county executive, they could just run as people and then educate the voters about what they want to do and their records. And there could still be a Democratic Party and a Green Party and a Libertarian Party, and it would be up to those groups to organize and get people to vote for their candidates. So you do away with the problem with minor parties, where they essentially sell their line for influence, patronage, and money, but you preserve the best aspects of it by letting them actually elect people. But you do, and you do flag in this piece that there's going to be the opponents who say that, you know, you need to see a partisan label. You need to see that so that voters have, a, 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 as you say, a clue about the, each candidate's ideological belief system. Well, right. So uh, that's always been the big rub against nonpartisan elections. Well, I know that there's an ideological identification if I see a candidate on a party's uh, line. I don't believe that's true. Uh, If you look at in Brooklyn, for instance, you have uh, Democrat Dove Hikind and Democrat Charles Barrett. Now, both Brooklyn Democrats, both up until last year were in the state assembly, they have belief systems as widely divergent as any two people in America. On, on local policy, on national policy, when you go to vote for judge, take a look at who's on the ballot. It's the same candidates endorsed by the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, and a couple of the third parties. What clue do voters really get about um, what those candidates stand for? I would argue... Very little. Uh, And look, we could certainly look at a nonpartisan elections model where candidates would have the option to list their party registration. Let's say you're a registered Green or a registered Democrat. You can put that on the ballot. um, And then in that way, that kind of answers that. But it still does away with the problem of um, having a line that can essentially be sold to the highest bidder. Frank, I really want to thank you uh, for participating. We've got just a few minutes left before I round out the show. I really want to thank you so much again for your support, uh, and I hope to cross paths with you again soon. Jeff, uh, please, you, you are a really talented broadcaster, a terrific journalist, and uh, I, I've come to consider you a friend. I, I do hope uh, you'll invite me back. I certainly hope you'll come back on, uh, on my show uh, sooner rather than later. Certainly. Frank, thanks so much, and happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for working today, too. Thank you. Uh, so uh, for those of you who also started the show where uh, Reggie Johnson was with me, with me, if you don't hear his voice now, it's because he's uh, off for the night now. And Sean Rhodes is with me now. Sean's much quieter, smiling at me. Uh, so we're going to be ending the show in just a few moments. But I, again, want to thank all of our guests who uh, took time 
uh, out of their for some of them they were working today for others they were spending time with family and friends uh, but took some time out to be able to uh, participate in our uh, extended driving forces show today I'd like to thank all of them I also really want to thank our listeners for tuning in this afternoon uh, to WBAI it's been very important to us to be able to stay on the air with local programming and I again want to uh, remind you that you uh, can show your support. It is that giving season right now, and it would be wonderful if you could show your support in a sustaining way, uh, as, as I do and a number of people that I know do, where you, uh, where you would like to just make a monthly contribution uh, to WBAI. And there are multiple ways you can do that. Uh, I just have it assessed on my credit card each month of five, ten, twenty dollars in a recurring way. It shows the support for our commercial free non-corporate station. Uh, again, I want to thank you for tuning in to Driving Forces. Uh, we rely on you. I will be back this Sunday on City Watch at 6 p.m. That's when I'm going to focus on World AIDS Day, which is December 1st. And in studio is going to be a special guest, Dimitri Daskalakis of the New York City Department of Mental, of Health and Mental Hygiene. I'm also going to bring you the story of a woman who's HIV positive and when she was diagnosed felt that this was a death sentence, but she has since created positive change in her life and has gone on beyond just helping herself to help others. Um, there was a beautiful piece that she had written in AM New York uh, yesterday, and uh, I wanted to have her on to be able to talk about her experience and how her, she shares her life experience to uh, help others. Again, if you uh, have missed any uh, portion of the show, if you want to catch it, uh, this will be up on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. You could also subscribe to Driving Forces there and never uh, miss a show. So, before we get uh, before we get to the next show tonight, Education at the Crossroads with Basir M. Chawi. Uh, I would like to end this special extended version of Driving Forces with another song uh, by Roberta Pickett from her CD, One for Marion, celebrating Marion McPartland. And remind you, if you do listen to this and enjoy this music and want to see it live next Friday at Flushing Town Hall, WBAI has five pairs of tickets for those listeners who would like to pledge support to BAI tonight. And that number is 516-620-620. 3602. Mention Driving Forces. We'd love to see you there. I'm Jeff Simmons, your host of Driving Forces, and I'd like to end the show by playing uh, Roberta Pickett's song, Saying Goodbye. <laughs> 